This podcast contains language which some people might find offensive. Your mum might be alright with it, your dad will definitely be fine with it, but granny might not like it. That said, your kids might find it educational and learn some new words to make them look cool at school. Also, there are many views and opinions that you might not share, and some fabricated situations that obviously didn't happen. Listener discretion is advised. Rock Geeks is sponsored by Wild West Yorkshire Co. Purveyors of fine apparel with a contemporary look. Just a couple of blokes Pouring over liner notes We're the Rock Geeks Yeah, we're the Rock Geeks Who played on that? Who played on the other? Who did the album for the album cover? We're the Rock Geeks Yeah, we're the Rock Geeks Oh, we're the Rock Geeks Hey Now then we are two middle-aged northerners. I'm Phil. This is Julian. Now then. <laughs> too many now then. It's like, it's like lost <laughs> Allow myself to introduce, introduce myself. myself. Uh, we are uh, aka The Rock Geeks, taking a deep dive into albums that we love, exploring who made them and how, and when and where they were made. On this episode of The Rock Geeks podcast, we will be taking a forensic look at Iron Maiden's eponymous debut album. So why are we looking at this one? Uh, well, I think because it's certainly not the best album, but it's not where it all began. It is. I think so. That's I put that one down on the list as being the first one that I wanted to do because of where it sits historically, and we'll look at the other albums that came out in that year as well. Um, like you said, it's not the best one. Um, and at the time when it when it came out, there was probably nothing else really around like it. But when we got into Maiden, you know, many years later, they changed and evolved a lot as a band, have not they? And this one seemed like it was, you know, from a different era completely to us. And it wasn't my favourite for a long time. But I think now it's probably in my top two, maybe my top two Maiden albums. Um, If I was going to listen to Iron Maiden now, I'd probably put this one on or Live After Death. That's Which is like saying my favourite Beatles album is the best of the Beatles. But, you know. that That's interesting, that. That it's, it's crept up your list because it's nowhere near my the top of my list. Mm. It's a great album, but it's just not, not there. It's not up there. So, it was recorded in January of 1980 at Kingsway Recording Studios in London um, and released on April the 14th, 1980. So just a few months later. How old were you in April of 1980? Four years old. Four years old. So I take it you didn't get to see any of the debut national tours or all like that? No, I think I was a little young. Yeah. yeah. And how old were you when you first heard it? I think you introduced me to Iron Maiden when I was about 12. I remember you having a copy of Live After Death, a double tape, and saying, you've got to come and listen to this. Yeah. And we went into your house and you put... I think the first part song I ever heard was Hallowed Be Thy Name, the live version of that. Um, you introduced me to that. I don't think it was the first thing that you ever heard by Maiden, was it? But that was definitely the first song I ever heard. Although no. I might have heard or seen Running Free on Top of the Pops, you know, because they did it on there, maybe when it was on, because we used to watch that a lot. Um, and then the Lucasade advert, which used to have, which we'll talk about in a minute, used to have, be on uh, a lot with Phantom of the Opera on it, but definitely Hallowed Be Thy Name when I was 12. Yeah, yeah. 
it's like we say it's it is an interesting album and it has a very uh interesting backstory i think uh more so than the others which you know once once maiden got into that touring machine of album tour album tour album tour there's not much going on but with this debut album there's a lot leading up to it and a lot of personal changes and so on and so forth that just makes it quite quite interesting if you look at any uh, or you read any history of iron maiden in the years leading up to this being released and even the two or three years afterwards there was like a revolving door really wasn't it there's was a couple of constant members steve harris obviously but aside from that, they seem to be changing album by album or rehearsal by rehearsal by all accounts, you know, in the early days. Yeah. Um, and I think what we'll look at here is Dennis Stratton a little bit, who seems to be an overlooked and forgotten member of the band, which I know, Phil, you like to talk about a little bit, because although he's down as being the guitarist on the album, you know, his influence over it is a lot more than what people think. Yeah, I think um, Dennis Stratton... In all honesty, isn't the greatest guitarist that Iron Maiden have ever had. But that said, it was there at a very pivotal moment in their career and I think was quite influential in uh, how the Maiden sound turned out on that first album. Um, and, and, and also, I think he got a bit of a bum deal. I'll, I'll be honest, I think, uh, I think Dennis Stratton uh, contributed a lot more than he's given credit for. Should we just talk about who actually played on that album? Because the lineup, like we just said, changed quite a lot in the early years of Iron Maiden. So we've got Dennis Stratton, who was the guitarist. If you run through yeah. the other people who were on it. So we've got uh, Clive Burr on drums, who, in my humble opinion, is the best Maiden drummer. Um, Did he join pretty late? Was he one of the later? Clive Burr, yeah. I, Clive Burr joined um, just before the first album. Right was recorded, I believe. And he came in because of Dennis Stratton, because Dennis Stratton came in December 79, I think, um, and he brought Clive with him. So that's pretty pretty kind of close to when they actually started recording the album. Yeah, yeah, it's like literally weeks before yeah. they started recording the album. Um, I think Doug Samson, the previous drummer, as he said in uh, A History of Iron Maiden, the uh, uh, documentary that they released... Uh, a few years ago, uh, in part one, he was saying that um, his body just wasn't up to the touring and working and right. sleeping in freezing cold vans in the depths of winter and all that sort of stuff. So, uh, so he he voluntarily uh, quit, and then uh, Dennis brought uh, brought Clive on board, uh, which is like one of the reasons why this album's so good. Because of Clive Burr, just his style, the way that he plays, is very tight but loose, swings quite nicely. So yeah, so we've got Clive Burr on drums, we've got um, Steve Harris, of course, on the bass guitar. Uh, Dave Murray, another uh, maiden, is the word stalwart, shall I say stalwart? Yeah. Uh, anyway, he's been in them from the start. Um, and... Uh, the incomparable Paul Diano. I think Paul Diano was probably the reason why it took me a long time to warm to this album. Yeah. Because our route into Iron Maiden was Live After Death, Bruce Dickinson, operatic vocals, his whole stage persona and personality. And then I remember us getting that Live at the Rainbow video and seeing Paul Diano come out with his, you know, in leather and the, but did he have a bullet? A bullet belt or something. Yeah. 
short hair, just his vocal style, and it just seemed a world away from it. And I just didn't, I didn't click with it. I liked the video, I liked that concert, uh, but I just didn't really warm to him very much. Uh, and it took a while, did that. How did you feel when you first saw Paul Diano singing? Um, well, you know, as a, as a sort of 12, 13-year-old, um, I was a little bit afraid of punk. And Paul Diano was quite punky, I thought. Mm. Were you scared of him? A little bit, yeah. Yeah, I, I'm probably be scared of him now, to be mm. honest. Um, it was the screams that got me as well. Yeah. You know, that, those high-pitched screams, I think. I just couldn't get my head around. Although Bruce Dickinson did a lot of high-pitched screaming. His were yeah. different in a way, weren't they? Yeah. But this, yeah, it, it, didn't, it didn't do it for me for a while. Well, you know what, though? I think having heard Bruce Dickinson sing some of the early material live, mm. I think that Paul Diano sings those songs better than Bruce. And I think after Killers, I think Maiden's music changed a little bit more to be more in tune with Bruce Dickinson's voice. So Didn't they re-record Prowler and Remember Tomorrow? Or am I Charlotte the Allet. Right. There were B-sides on some of the uh, Seventh Sun singles, right. I think. And to say how much I like those songs, I remember being a bit, they're all yeah. right, you know, it sounds okay. Uh, maybe part of his charm, Paul Diano, is that it's not a trained voice, is it? It's not. You know, it's not somebody who's aware of his his vocal range and actually how to physically sing. You know, like the kind of how you have to, um, you know, what you need to do to reach some of the notes and breathing techniques and so on. He's just there with a the microphone in his hand. It seems like, and he's just going for it. <laughs> yeah. So as we've said, the. Uh, Album was recorded in uh, January of 1980 at Kingsway Recording Studio, which, interestingly enough, was owned or part-owned by Ian Gillen of Deep Purple fame and uh, future Iron Maiden producer Martin Birch. Very interesting. Everything, as uh, Astonishing Legends would say, everything is connected. So, um, Kingsway Recording Studio was um, started by uh, Major William Delane Lee, it was a French intelligence attaché uh, for the British government, and he founded uh, what was then called Delaine Lee Studios in 1947 to dub English films into French. I wonder what kind of films they were. Mm. Uh, and it's now, uh, it's the building is now a boots chemist. Kingsway Studio was set up uh, by the company S.H. Benson, uh, who were an advertising agency who used studio for jingles and voiceovers. Uh, and in the mid-60s, it, it was acquired by Jacques Delaine Lee, the son of founder William Delaine Lee. And uh, following his father's death in 64, Jacques took over the company and shortly after invested uh, in a four-track recording studio. Yeah, but it was... Do you think it was like the um, Tascam part of one that we had? Yeah. I think it was exactly <laughs> like that. Um, at, at least uh, that small... I think I had a Fostex. Or did, did, yeah, sorry, I'm just in, yeah. interrupting you now. It's all right. I, I'm, I'm interested to know <laughs> the potted history of your home recording. Um, so um, the four-track studio, believe it or not, attracted the likes of the Rolling Stones, Fleetwood Mac, uh, Jimi Hendrix, The Who, The Animals, and Cream to the, uh, to the studio, all drawn by the four-track uh, facility. 
Uh, Dave Siddle had become studio manager under Benson's and stayed on to turn Kingsway into one of the biggest rock studios in London. Uh, the actual location uh, was less glamorous, being in a basement under the Midland Bank. <laughs> Uh, in 65, the studio installed a Sound Techniques desk, the first to be produced commercially outs- uh, for an outside studio by Sound Techniques. And it was with this desk that some of the greatest guitar sounds ever put to tape were recorded. On uh, October the 23rd, 1966, the Jimi Hendrix Experience uh, recorded its first two songs, Hey Joe and Stone Free. Oddly enough, I think one of Dave Murray's early bands were called Stone Free. I think you might be right. Everything is connected. It certainly is. Stealing that quite blatantly. Uh, so they recorded that at the studio. Um, hey Joe is released in England on December 16th and it reaches number four in the charts. Uh, and the follow-up single, Purple Haze, reaches number three. And the first album, Are You Experienced, remains close to the top of the charts throughout the summer of 1967. So, you know, it's this studio is a big concern with the whopping four tracks of recording power. I'm being facetious, but, you know, they did great things with those four tracks. It's not the size, it's what you do with it that counts. Yeah, yeah. somebody said that to you before. A couple of times. Uh, Kingsway Studios featured a Rain Dirk recording console. And now, if, you, if you're unfamiliar, as I was before reading this, uh, Rain Dirk is something of a big deal in the recording uh, console uh, world. Uh, I think they're up there with Neve. Who right. Most, I hear that a lot. Yeah. Well, if you've seen the Sound City documentary, yep. you know all about uh, Neve recording consoles. And, and Raindock, Raindirk uh, are up there. So they were founded in, uh, founded in 1973 um, and they are a manufacturer of high-end pro audio equipment used in both recording studios and live sound reproduction. Uh, Raindirk's first console was sold to former Deep Purple singer Ian Gillan's Kingsway Studios. And later, even Rupert Neve purchased one of his consoles, which strikes me as a bit odd, really. Because it's it's a bit like, I don't know, Enzo Ferrari buying a Lamborghini. Do you know what I mean? Like, like Yes. Why would you buy someone else's stuff when you've got your own perfectly serviceable stuff. Maybe you wanted to nick all the good bits of it, see how it worked, yeah. and see if they'd done anything. That Industrial even... espionage. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, you might be right there. Um, so, uh, Rendirk founder Cyril Jones was asked to design a 24-track recording console for the band Deep Purple to be installed at the old Delane Lee Studios in Kingsway, London. That console went on to record the likes of, as we've mentioned, The Who, The Animals, ELO, Iron Maiden, Leo Sayer, Ooh. the great Leo Sayer, feels like dancing, Woo. Uh, Paul McCartney and Wings, uh, Band on the Run was recorded on that uh, console, and many others, and amazingly, although the console is nearly 40 years old, it's still going strong at the Atom H studio in Dusseldorf, which I think might be a bit dated information, because I couldn't find any information on that particular studio. Um, and I can't find any exists, any evidence that that studio exists. Um, but if you were to look at our website, insert web address here, uh, you will find photos of this uh, very console and uh, maybe a picture of uh, some band members stood next to it. Exciting times. Um, 
So following the recording, uh, Iron Maiden was mixed at Morgan Studios in London in February of 1980. Um, Killers and The Number of the Beast were recorded at Morgan Studios. Um, Studios 3 and 4 were sold to Zomba in 1980 and renamed Battery Studios. Um, And they were the first studio in the UK to have a 24-track tape machine. Wow. 24-hole tracks. That's like having... (laughs) Hang on, for a... 12, 16, 20, six four-track recording studios well all done. hooked well up to, together. Quick maths. Thanks. Okie dokie. So then, following mixing at uh, Morgan Sound Studios, uh, the album was released on April 14th, 1980 and reached number four on the UK album chart upon release, which is quite a feat, I, I think, think. Yeah. for a debut album that's um, been as Maiden have been for a long, 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 long time, promoted by word of mouth, no no radio play, no MTV. Yeah, I don't think Simon Bates was playing it, was he? Probably not, no. Maybe Dave Lee Travis might have given it a spin. The hairy cornflake. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, the album spawned a couple of singles. Well, it spawned one single, actually, uh, I think, uh, Running Free. Uh, and also Sanctuary, which was recorded but didn't appear on the original UK album release. I think it appeared on a US release later. Um, and they were released on the 8th of February 1980 and the 23rd of May 1980, respectively. Running three charted in the UK at number 34, while Sanctuary peaked at number 29. Interesting. Yeah. And didn't Running Free appear? They did it on top of the pops, didn't they? They did. And did they... they... Was it live vocals and a backing track, or did they do it all no, live? it was completely live. The first band to do so since The Who in 1973, mm. I believe, with uh, Long Live Rock. So, I've waffled for quite long enough. Tell us about some historical context for this album because I think it's really important that these albums that came out 40 plus years ago um, are contextualised in a way that makes them or some of the more dated aspects of them to be a little more easily understood. Yeah, because if you listen to it uh, now you might forget that like you're saying it's it's one of the first albums of its kind really and other albums that came out that year and it reads... You know, there's there's some pretty powerful albums coming out. ACDC's Back in Black so came out that year. Judas Priest, British Steel. Motorhead, Ace of Spades. The Blizzard of Oz, Ozzy Osbourne. Black Sabbath, Heaven and Hell. Def Leppard, On Through the Night. Is that the first one? I don't think I've heard of I that one. I think it might be. I don't know. I don't know enough about Leopard. No, I don't either. Diamond Heads, Lightning to the Nations. Samson, Head On, which had Bruce Dickinson on vocals. And then Saxon, Wheels of Steel. So some pretty heavy hitters, pretty big heavy hitting uh, there albums are. there. There are. Especially Back in Black, which is an absolute behemoth of an album. Funnily enough, I don't own any of those albums. I think I maybe I had Back in Black at the time, but a lot of the other stuff kind of passed me by. I didn't really... Maybe it was for the same reason that this album, the Iron Maiden album, passed me by as well. It seemed a bit too dated when I was that age and I just wanted to, you know, I, I didn't want to listen to stuff that was older. 
Yeah, I think I think what happens is, at least for me, is that an album is released, maybe a live album or something like that. So, for instance, Ozzy Osbourne, Blizzard of Oz, I got into that through the Randy Rhodes tribute album, which came out sort of mid to late 80s, I think. So a lot of those old Aussie tracks were on that. Um, Have you listened to that recently? Yes. Oh, it's uh-huh. good, isn't it? It is a great album. It's a great album. Randy Rhodes is absolute, uh, absolute legend. Um, so Diamond Head, I, Lightning to the Nations, I didn't have that particular album, but I did have a couple of Diamond Head cassettes that I got on import, just simply because Metallica covered... I know. I think in our naivety, their things. listening to Diamond Head, I was a bit like, well, it's all right, but why would I listen to that when I could listen to the Metallica version? Well, Which I feel a yeah. bit foolish for now. Um, but I do remember that at the time, because obviously the Metallica one sounded much bigger and we liked Metallica anyway. And the Diamond Head ones, I think they only had one guitarist, didn't they? Yeah. And it just seemed a lot weaker. But... Again, you know, I should have given it more of a chance, I suppose, yeah. in retrospect. Although they have re-recorded a lot of their uh, back catalogue and it's on Spotify and it sounds immense So with the modern production technique, so give it a go. So what else was happening? Uh, what was happening in the UK in uh, April of 1980 or thereabouts? A lot, basically. Thatcher, Margaret Thatcher's Tory government had been in power for just over a year. Ooh. How much longer was left? Was it 91 she was in power until? Too freaking long. Yeah, I think it was 91. Um, Unemployment in the UK hit 2 million by the end of 1980. Britain's steel industry was on the collapse, going down the toilet. Um, Interestingly, maybe that influenced the Judas Priest and Saxon album titles. Iron Maiden were relatively low on political and social commentary in the songs. The Sanctuary single had a picture of Thatcher being killed by Eddie, um, which, if you ever get a chance to find Derek Riggs talking about this, is worth a listen, mainly yeah. because Derek Riggs is very amusing to listen to. Um, and then, basically, Iron Maiden, they don't, there's nothing political, really, in their songs. There's a few things where you think it's politically incorrect, you know, like things which have not dated too well, but they're not a big band who are into the social commentary and talking about what's going on at the time. Um, although some of the things that were going on at the time maybe have influenced a couple of their songs. So Peter Sutcliffe, the Yorkshire Ripper, he's still at large at this point when the album comes out. It won't be caught until the next year. Um, and I think there was a few songs by Iron Maiden, a few songs by other bands which were influenced by, you know, what was going on at the time. And also other serial killers as well. It was, it was all the rage in the yeah, late well, 70s being a serial killer. Yeah, it, I, I think um, I think a lot of people were into that kind of thing. <laughs> they were. Back then, uh, in, in the UK and America and probably elsewhere as well, it was it was quite a, a, a big trend. Um, it, it spawned quite a lot of um, serial killer-themed songs. Um, so uh, Killers, the title track to Killers is obviously about that kind of uh, brutal uh, mindset of a, of a serial killer. Um, Diano explained that uh, it was about a psychotic killer and what he's thinking about while he's doing it, which, you know, maybe maybe he's not thinking about Maybe he's thinking, have I left the iron on? Um, what am I going to have for mm. my tea later? Chop- All that washing that this yeah. is going to create. Yeah, chopped liver maybe. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, um, and also on that album, there's Murders in the Rue Morgue. Yep. Which obviously is based on the film, but, you know, has a sort of murdering theme to it, to it as the title suggests. Uh, the, the 
debut al- uh, debut song of, uh, of of Maiden's career, Prowler, has a bit of a creepy serial mm. killery sort of vibe. So that's three songs by one band. I think Maiden might have had a problem. I think you might be right there. Um, I mean, and then you know, beyond that, you've got um, Psycho Killer, My Talking Heads. Uh, Judas Priest had a song called The Ripper, which was all about Jack the Ripper. Um, Susie and the Banshees had a song uh, about the Yorkshire Ripper called Night Shift. Uh, there's, there's just loads. Thin Lizzy, Killer Without a Cause. Thin Lizzy, Killer on the Loose. I think maybe um, Thin Lizzy needed to yeah. work on the song titles a little bit. Um, ACDC, Night Prowler was about Richard Ramirez. Um Stranglers, La Folie was uh, about the Japanese serial killer Issy Sagawa. The adverts, Gary Gilmore's eyes, which um, was about Gary Gilmore, obviously, and his eyes. Um, and then uh, Warren Zevon, one of my personal favourites, uh, Excitable Boy in '78. So all who's these, that about? Um, it's just a made-up song about an excitable boy who right. kills kills people. People, yeah. Um, so you know, around that time, that's that's a lot of songs. I, I I challenge anyone to find a list of songs that long since those, like the last of those songs, I think came out in about around about eighty two. Mm. So a very so, short period of time for a lot of bands to be writing about serial killers, isn't it? It is. It must have been in. Is is the word zeitgeist that I'm looking for? It might be. I'm not that clever, so maybe it is. Maybe it ain't. Uh, so continue. Any any other interesting tidbits from? Uh, CND rallies being held at Green and Common. Mm-hmm. Um, Iron Maiden touched upon kind of, you know, nuclear arms race with Die With Your Boots On, on Peace of Mind, and then Two Minutes to Midnight, which was on Power Slave. But I think that's probably as far as they got with it. Around the world, there were a few things happening as well. Ronald Reagan, the actor, um, <laughs> defeated Jimmy Carter to become the 40th. President of the United States. Was that in a boxing match that um, defeated him? I don't think so. I, th- no. I, I think he could have had Jimmy Carr. Ah, I do as well. Weak chin. Yeah. USA boycott the Moscow Olympics in protest at Russia's invasion of Afghanistan. They've been at it for years, yeah. haven't they? Yeah, nothing changes. Uh, Rubik's Cube Yeah. makes its international debut. I've never completed Rubik's Cube. Empire Strikes Back. I've never seen The Empire Strikes Back. Have you not? No. I have. I think I've seen half of the first Star Wars film. It's all right. (laughs) High praise indeed. (laughs) It was when, I think it's the first one and they're in the desert just wandering around and the little things bleeping away. I just thought, I'm not into this. (laughs) Speaking of bleeping things, Pac-Man, the highest earning arcade game of all time, released in Japan. Tim Berners-Lee. Do you know who he is? Um, No, but you're about to tell me. I am, yes. Tim Berners-Lee created the World Wide Web. So Uh. what he did was around this time, he started with a bit of a system which would eventually uh, lead to the World Wide Web. Ford launched an Escort Mark III, whereas if you grew up in the 80s like we did, an Escort Mark III was the classic car, It was the pinnacle. The XR3i was the pinnacle of hot hatches. It really, really was. Back then. Sounded like Partridge then. (laughs) (laughs) On the 17th uh, of May in Tampa, Florida, court acquitted four white police officers of killing Arthur McDuffie, a black insurance executive, provoking th- three days of race riots in Miami. 
Things are have uh, not moved much further on from that. No, from, still from Afghanistan to Miami. Exactly, things are much the same. And also, which is um, quite sad, obviously, a bad year for people dying. What was the year recently where everybody was? Two thousand and sixteen. Right. Okay. Nineteen eighty was very similar. Ian Curtis of oh. Joy Division. Joy Division. Yeah. John Bonham. Never heard of him. No. Was he? No. No. Bon Scott. Legend. John, hang on. John Bonham Scott. Oh, I never noticed that. Oh before. no, no, yeah, so, yeah, Bon Scott, yeah, go on. And John Lennon, John never, Lennon Bonham Scott, John Lennon Bonham <laughs> Scott, yeah, accountancy firm. Um, <laughs> yeah, never heard of him either. So, yeah, yeah, so an eventful time. So when you yeah. look at the album in the context of that, it kind of gives you an idea of what was going on in the world at the time. And I think that's bright. It's overlooked sometimes when people, in retrospect, look at albums. They don't look at what's going on before it or what's led up to it and what else was going on, you know, at that time. Yeah. Um, and how it was influenced by what was going on. So yes. I think that I think that's it's interesting though that like Iron Maiden's debut album is a lot of it is kind of um almost fantasy based. Like the album cover is very fantastical sort of figure on the front. What's his name? Um, Eddie the Ed. Sorry, I forgot. To, but I'm just assuming that everybody knows. No, I was thinking of what was Eddie the, the Ed. what was the original because that's Derek Riggs. That's oh uh, yeah, was pic- it called Hello Matthew or something like that? Like, say hello to Electric Matthew. Or Some, something yeah, like and it was a picture that he did or a painting, and it was somebody with really short hair, and then the band really liked it, so they said, "Can you make it?" I don't know. Give him longer hair. So what they did was the, the he amended that picture, added to it, and then it became the cover. Yeah. So, yeah, and a lot of this, 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 the song um, themes thematically, you know, it, there's some flights of fantasy going on there, mm. like um, jumping out of a bush and exposing your junk to young yep. ladies in town. Yeah, um, Phantom of the Opera, Strange World is a bit sort of out there and a bit yep. druggy in it. You don't roll your eyes. It's a good song. That it's Danny Stratton's best guitar solo, um, and you know, so so. In amongst this sort of very British, gritty winter of 79 into 1980, Iron Maiden are creating this this work that just takes the listener away from Two Million Unemployed, mm. away from the... Well, not away from the serial killers because they're singing about the bloody serial killers, aren't they? Um, but it takes, you know... It, it, the 70s were a very grim time in, in the UK, I think. I was there for part of it. Not, not that I remember a lot of it, but you know, albums like this, I think, are really important. In in it's like like Ziggy Stardust in the early seventies, you know, um, appearing on top of the pops. It took kids like out of their living rooms and into mm. this fantastically exotic, fantastical place and space in time. And I think as well Ooh. that kind of music, because it wasn't liked or accessible by everyone if you did like it it felt like you were buying into something and you were part of something you had so a, you had a tribe you did have a tribe and i think now that's gone a little bit i think tribes don't exist quite so much in music anymore because for a long time you know when we were younger our the bands you liked were like a massive part of how you dressed you know you know what you looked like how your hair was mullets yep. Um, you know, whether or not you're going to play guitar or not, how you spent your time out of school and so on. And I don't think, I really don't think that that's around as much now, that tribal element. I think uh, people, because people have got access to so much. 
Yeah. You don't have to align yourself with one thing because you can only afford to buy one tape every three months or something. You can listen to whatever you want, which is great, but I don't think that people kind of align themselves with one type of music like people who bought this album probably were. I don't know what you are. How you think well, about that? I, I, I completely agree. And, and I think the interesting thing is um, that although many folks would consider choosing a band like Maiden to ally themselves with would be like a, a, an expression of their individuality. Um, in that mass expression comes a, the kind of uniform, identifiable uniform of, you know, a, a, a denim waistcoat covered in patches, a, a leather jacket, spikes, long hair, mm. you know, jeans. When, when you look at some of those early pictures of Iron Maiden, though, I don't think that metal really had got its image together that much. Because if you look at some of the stuff they wear, now when you think of it, it's like it's either denim or leather. Spandex. You know, I've seen some pictures of Steve Harris and he's got like what look like really tight chinos on and a leather jacket. Yeah. And so I think it was still developing the look of it. But um, uh, to be you, part of that at the time was probably really good. If you can share the photo of Steve Harris in tight chinos yeah. with me later, yeah. that'd, be, that'd be good. <laughs> All right, Phil, is that a new T-shirt? Yeah, it is, actually. That looks good. Where did you get it? I got it from Wild West Yorkshire Co. Being a man on the shorter side, I often find that finding T-shirts to fit me perfectly could be quite a challenge, but not so with Wild West Yorkshire Co. Their T-shirts are of the highest quality and feature some cool, unique artwork and fit me better than any T-shirt I've ever worn. So who are Wild West Yorkshire Co.? Wild West Yorkshire Co. are two creative blokes, Dan and Johnny, who founded Wild West Yorkshire Co. in 2020 as a way to express their collective artistic flair, giving customers a product that not only looks great, but feels great to wear too. Mm. Can I get anything apart from T-shirts? Yes, you can. Wild West Yorkshire Co. produce a range of cool-looking hoodies, vests, baseball caps and beanies, all featuring contemporary artwork that you won't find anywhere else. They also produce clothing for younger folks, so your kids can look cool too. And if you're looking for some wall art to bring a certain je ne sais quoi to your home, you can buy prints too. Cool. So where do I go to purchase Wild West Yorkshire Co. clothing? Simply go to wildwestyorkshire.co. That's wildwestyorkshire.co. And if you're a Rock Geeks listener, enter the code ROCKGEEKS10 and you'll receive a 10% discount on every purchase. Better still, all the packaging is 100% recyclable and biodegradable, making them a super eco-friendly company to buy from. Well, I'm going to go there right now. You do that, you won't regret it, and you'll look cooler than you've ever looked, which admittedly isn't hard to achieve for either of us. You speak for yourself. That promo code again. Go to wildwestyorkshire.co and enter the promo code ROCKGEEKS10 to receive your 10% discount. So let's talk a little bit about the uh, the track listing. Eight songs, lazy. Eight songs. I oh know they're lazy, but and considering how many songs Steve Harris had written up to that point, to only put eight on the the album, and one of them hadn't even got any words in it. Lazy bastard. It's ridiculous, isn't it? Lazy, lazy bastard. Anyway, so um, the Prowler. What do you think of the Prowler? I I didn't like how it sounded when I first heard it, and even now I can't get. The timing of it, how it comes in. Yeah, it's weird, isn't it? it? it, it send, I like to know where I am within songs, like with a beat in my head, but for that, I just can't tell where I am with it. Yeah. Um, I remember the, the, al- the albums that we got into first seemed to be a bit more fuller sounding. 
you know, they seemed like they filled the room or the speakers up a lot more. And this just sounded a bit underwhelming. Even that remaster that came out a few years ago, I think maybe um, hasn't made much of a difference to it. When you when you hear about how it was recorded, I don't think it's any surprise really that the production is, you know, not quite as good as it could have been. Um that burst of feedback before the wah guitar, I didn't like that. I thought it was amateurish at the time because we'd been used to all the slick stuff that had come out, you know, like Somewhere in Time um, and Power Slave and things which were really, Back. really, really meticulously produced. Now, though, obviously I love it. And, you know, I imagine it was probably done one or two takes, two or three. I don't know, it might not have been, but it does sound like that and I like that. Um, I imagine Steve Harris wanted it to sound better. Um his bass sound and it's very weird as well, which I might come on to a bit later when we talk about his gear and stuff. And for the first time here, let's talk about Will Malone. I don't think his input into it by all the accounts that I've read um, was really what you would call producing. No, um, I mean, we'll, we'll get on to Mil, Will, Mil, Mil Willone. That's his brother. That's his brother, yeah. We'll get on to uh, Will Malone in greater depth uh, a bit later on. But yes, it's fair to say that his input was minimal. Um, and I th- I personally think that the, the, the person whose influence was greatest on how the record sounds is uh, Martin Levin, who was the engineer who the band worked with. I imagine he's really difficult to get hold of, Martin Levin. He is quite hard to get hold of, yes, but um, in, a, in a Rock Geeks exclusive, we did manage to get in touch with Martin Levin uh, and get a few little tidbits of information which we will share... A little later on in the podcast, uh, so stay tuned for that. And th- well, going back to this song, I I don't really listen to lyrics that much in songs. I'm aware of them being there. I don't analyse them. I don't look for any deeper meaning within lyrics. They're just part of the overall song. So the fact that this was about, you know, a serial killer or somebody um, with those tendencies passed me by for years because I just didn't. It just I just didn't go that far into listening to the uh, to the lyrics really. What do you think about this song? Um, I think it's great. I think it's by equal measures great and weird. Um, it's got a funny structure to it. It has got a weird structure to it. It's not a traditional song structure, is it? No. Most songs around that time, and still are, verse, chorus, verse, chorus, a middle bit, yeah, and then verse, chorus, or just a chorus, and then the end. Yeah. This song's missing a second verse. Yeah. Yeah. Well... Probably, you know, with the lyrical theme being what it is, that's possibly a good thing. Um, I can't imagine the conversation that um, that went on in the rehearsal room when, uh, you know, do you want to do the bit? I'll be, I'll, I'll be, I'll, I'll, you, you'll be Paul and I'll be Steve. I can't remember how he talks. Well, he's a cockney geezer, he's I can't now. even do... I can't do accents. I'll just be a Yorkshire Steve Harris. Right. So in our heads, yeah. Paul oh. and Steve have got Yorkshire accents. <laughs> Specifically, they're from Wakefield. Um, yeah. So it probably went a bit like this. So, Steve, you got any new lyrics for me to sing then? Well, Paul. That's, <laughs> that's me, extended accent. Well, Paul, as it happens, I have. Great, Steve. What are they about? Well... <laughs> They're about a guy walking through town, jumping out of the bushes and fleshing his cock and balls at some women. Sounds amazing, Steve. I like it. 
Yeah, but he still sung them, didn't he? Yeah. He still got up behind the mic and sang yeah. those lyrics. Yeah. Yeah, I, you know, sometimes I think it's best not to know what's going through a songwriter's head when they're mm. uh, when they're writing a song. Uh, Prowl is a prime example of that. I do think that as an opening track, it's probably about as good as anything on the album to introduce you to Iron Maiden. Yeah. I think it's a great showcase for Dave Murray's guitar skills. I know you've only said Dave Murray there. Well, he plays the solo. Right, okay. There's only one solo on it, I think. Right. And uh, and he and he does that. So that's I mean that solo encapsulates Dave Murray's signature style. It does, like right from the get go. So um, so I think it's a great opening track for that. For those of you that way inclined, if you listen to the middle bit, the stabs or the bits where you know it's going into that middle bit are so behind the beat, it's almost out of time. I think if you put a metronome behind that, yeah. it's almost out of time. Well, I think given that Clark Burr came on board quite late. And I'm probably, not saying it is bad. Pro- yeah, and probably didn't have enough time to sort of develop that sort of bass player drummer bond with yeah. Steve Harris. Um, but even so, you know, I think it's it's an art. You know, mm. playing behind and in front of the beat. I think if you can do it and you can do it well, I yeah. think it's a good thing. Otherwise, it just sounds a bit stiff, doesn't it? This is probably the first time we can talk about Dennis Stratton and his vocals. Do you think there's is any it? Dennis Stratton on this? Think to the, the verse. I don't know. There's some high backing vocals in the verse on the I've Just Got to Find My Way stuff. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. I can't see Steve Harris coming up with those. No. Or saying what I think this needs is a three-part harmony. So I think maybe that's a bit of his influence on it. Oh, definitely. Definitely. Remember tomorrow, I believe this is one of your favourite Iron Maiden riffs. It certainly is. It's the bit which is kind of the chorus part. Doesn't have the chorus of this I view to be the main heavy riff after the verse. Again, I've not got a clue what he's talking about or singing about, rather. Um, it sounds really great. It's quite a nice little come down after that first song on the album. It's the first glimpses of Paul, Mc- Paul Diano doing his kind of high pitched vocal warblings. Yeah! That's the one. And I think as well, if you were to take this song and put it in the middle of Peace of Mind, Maybe Power Slave, it'd probably fit all right. Really? Whereas there's some on here which I don't think I don't think would. I, I oh, do you know what? I'm not sure about that. It's, I mean, it's an interesting uh, it's an interesting point, but I'm not sure I'd, I'd, I'd put it that far along the evolutionary scale. How do you think Running Free would sit on um, somewhere in time? Oh, it wouldn't. <laughs> or Prowler. It wouldn't. Um, I know what you mean. Like, I think "Remember Tomorrow" is definitely like a glimpse into the future of of, of the Maiden sound. Um, you know, it, it is an interesting point. I think maybe the furthest along the Maiden evolutionary scale that I would place uh, "Remember Tomorrow" is possibly the number of the beast. Mm, I disagree, but that's although, one. yeah, I think that's as far as I'd go with it. Um, but it has. It is a song that I think has stood the test of time better than most of the tracks on the album. Um, I think it's one of Paul Diano's finer vocal performances um, in the studio. Um, there is a live version of Dickinson singing this quite early on that I've heard. I think, and I think I've heard him singing it and being a bit underwhelmed by it. I think I think Diano's yayas and what have you is a, a, a bit better, I think. I think it's more suited to his to his voice. 
And I think, um, you know, Weather Prowler was a great showcase for Dave Murray's um, guitaring prowess. Um, remember, tomorrow features the first Dennis Stratton solo, which I have to say, no offence to Dennis Stratton, it, it's a little bit underwhelming. Uh, I think he underperforms a little bit and, and lets the team down. But, you know, I'm not in the studio recording Iron Maiden's debut album, am I? You know, so I can only say I'll see it. It also has the first. Where did that come from? Time change in it, mm. where you're just thinking, "Oh yeah, I think I, I get this song." Yep, 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 and then it just completely changes track. Yeah, bit of a bit of a proggy yep. influence to it, and also you know that sort of pickup, that that tempo pickup for me is quintessentially Clive Burr. Right. You know, like just the way that it picks up and he starts to push the beat and, you know, swings it a bit on the hats and what have you. I think, I think that's a quintessentially Clive Burr moment. Um, so moving on, the single off the album peaked at number 34, I believe. So running free, probably one of the first bass lines I tried to learn. Exactly, yeah. Steve Harris bass lines are really difficult to play, which is surprising when you think about a lot of them are exactly the same because it's all just E to D to C and then the guitars tend to be doing the more interesting stuff over the top. The thing with Steve Harris is it's the stamina that you need to play them because he might not be playing the flashy stuff all the time but it's playing those with your fingers consistently. Yeah. I don't know how he does it. But Well, I I heard that he's got one of those finger springy things that you press down and hold in the palm of your hand. Right. And and like do like exercises. I heard that he did that for at least three hours a day. Right. Like an hour and a half in the morning and then an hour and a half before he goes to bed. Well, even the, well, the ones which are even the slower ones, once you get to the end of the song, you know, your arms really, really hurt. And part of the, I think one of the ways that he actually managed it as well is he plays with flat round strings on a Fender Precision and they're a bit, they're a bit easier to play anyway, the flat round strings. Um, and he plays really light. I don't think he hits them too hard. And the way he attacks as well, that's why when you listen to him live, there's always like a clanking sound in the background and that's him because he kind of hits the strings downwards a lot more than kind of bass players who maybe you can't see this, but I'm kind of like plucking upwards with fingers and he does that. Um, Yeah, so that's probably one of the only ones I learned actually. I mean, I do know a lot more of them now, but I remember at the time just thinking they're just too difficult. Took a really long time to be able to play a lot of his bass lines. Um, did you learn any of these guitar, any of the guitar stuff off this album? I didn't. Apart from, um, I tried. The thing that I wanted to learn the most was the riff from Phantom of the Opera. Mm. I don't think I've got that right yet. I still don't no. think I play it properly. No, it's it's very uh, it's, it's it's quite tricky timing wise. Um, but no, I, 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 I'll be honest. I didn't really get into learning stuff off this album. Um, probably because it wasn't one of my favourites. Mm. Um, yeah. Lyrics are naff though, aren't they, innit? In Running Free? Yeah. Yeah, I, I think... Um, did, was De- did Deanna write the lyrics to this? I don't know. Like pickup trucks and being 16 in an LA jail. Yeah. I mean, there's an interesting quote from uh, from Paul Deanna. Um uh, where he, he says that um, uh, Running Free is basically my song. Right. So that could be a bit um, contentious. Um, I asked Steve to play this certain bass line and he did. Um, and I actually ended up getting a songwriting credit. 
Yeah. So there you go. So he, he, he did co-write the song. So probably, very probably. So it's didn't. not soul. It's not solely written by him. I can't remember. No, no I don't think. I think he probably did. He probably did do the metal the bands used to love should, putting who wrote the song after yeah. it, didn't they, on the track listing? We should we should research this better. Um, anyway, um, so anyway, he said I had the idea for it all. I stole the idea off Gary Glitter with drumbeat and stuff like that. Which, for anybody listening outside of the UK, um, is possibly not the greatest uh, uh, influence to cite in a quote. Yeah, um, we won't talk too much about him, but safe to say you can go off and research all you like about Gary Glitter. Um, yeah. yeah, but I can see where that sort of feel yeah. comes from. It's got, it's definitely got like a bit of a glam rock kind of uh, beat. It'd be interesting to see when so, he said that. At what yeah. point? Yeah, whether that's like a quote from ages ago or it's something that he said more recently. You know, I think he would have tailored it to be like I just thought it was like the sweet or something like that. No, yeah. T Rexy, if he's going to talk yeah. about down a glam route. Yeah, um, it's interesting yeah. though with this song because on the like the first time I heard this song was on Live After Death, uh, when Bruce talks about uh, going to a hearing doctor, yeah. which I'm not sure that, that is a technical, technically Aud- accurate term. Is it an audiologist? It could be an audiologist, but if he said the word audiologist in front of twelve thousand fans in, it's Long Bruce Beach Dickinson. Arena, I can imagine that he would do. I want to go back to the audiologist and yeah. say, audiologist, Long Beach <laughs> fucked up my hearing for good, all right? It doesn't really have the same yeah, no, no. kind of ring to it, does it? Um, but anyway, um, yeah, so it's definitely got that sort of pub rock boogie kind of sound, that sort of glam rock It's feel. a single, isn't it? It's yeah. a definite single. Yeah. When you put that this one next to... You know, Prowler or something like that. This is definitely like the single yeah. one. They must have, when the record company heard it, they probably just instantly yeah. thought, well, that's the one then, isn't it? Yeah. So I sing along your chorus, nice little drum beat that people are probably familiar with from old 70 songs that they liked. Yeah. Uh, like, it seems it, like an obvious choice. It doesn't fit in with anything else that they've done since, yeah, I don't but, think. Yeah. I mean, it's got, it's definitely got like, um, some of those descending guitar lines are, are definitely sort of reminiscent of Tiger Feet by Mud. Mm. It's definitely got that vibe to it. So yeah, Phantom of the Opera. I remember on the tape there was a massive gap before this song started. Well, there should be. It's weird. Why? There should be because it's it is like the flagship tune. It's not the obvious single, but it is the greatest musical event on the whole album. Oh, that's controversial. Really? You don't think so? <laughs> well, you might be right. Anyway, strange. Yeah, world, if maybe? you if you ask anybody our age. Oh, if you played somebody this intro who's our age, yeah, I reckon everybody would be like, "That's." I'm pretty sure. Was it Daley Thompson? Yeah. English athlete called Daley Thompson. And I think he was just doing a sprint, wasn't he? And this song was playing in the background when he was training or something like that. Maybe. but I, I think he was hurdling. Was he hurdling? I think so. But yeah, I think most people of our, our age, you know, in your 40s, group in the 80s, um, oh, you, you know, w- would recognise this song if you played that intro. I think the intro when you, when I heard that intro on the the, the Daily Thompson Lucas Aid advert, 
it, I did, I did, I, you know, I didn't know Iron Maiden were, and I didn't know what the music was, but I did prick up my ears, and I did think to myself, that's quite interesting. Mm. Um, I can't remember what year it was that. I'd and heard. and exciting. I imagine it was 1980 because it, you know, it was Moscow Olympics and all that, and oh, right. Daley Thompson won a gold medal that year. I do believe. Right, okay. So, yeah, yeah. I think it's another one that could be on a different album as well. You know, yeah. we said they can't all, they probably all wouldn't fit on a different album, but this one does. Uh, and I'm, I've never been very good at playing this one, especially the middle bit where it breaks down. Because yeah. the stamina you need to do that middle bit in time, constant, is really, really difficult with your fingers as well as a bass player. Um, and I didn't have the right arm stamina to play it well at 14. Which That's, is surprising, really. It is. It is. I was about to say that very same thing. Um, maybe you need to, something you can work on. Yeah, I've, ca- I've continued to work on it in my spare time, and it's still the same, unfortunately. You need to get one of those finger springy things. Maybe I do. Maybe I do. Um, yeah, I, um, I think you're right. I think this this is another uh, track off the debut album that has definitely stood the test of time and is still a huge uh, fan favourite to this day. Um, I think it does squeeze it probably could squeeze onto other albums um later albums in the 80s um and and again it's kind of you know there's a few tempo changes time changes you know it's got that sort of proggy kind of feel to it Mm. um but yeah it's by far the most sophisticated song on the album and i think it completely blows out of the water any accusations of maiden being a punk influence influence band um, you know, image-wise, Paul Diano might have had a bit of a punky kind of um, look to him and vocally might have had some punk tendencies. Um, but this song, Phantom of the Opera, is definitely, definitely not a punk song. Um, it might sound rough and ready and a bit raw, like a, you know, like a punk tune, but it's got all the sophistication of anything by Queen. Mm. Again... Dave Money Shines on this. He's got that little repeating motif. And all that stuff. Did you like that? I might sing mm, a little very bit good, later on. Um, yeah, Dave Money showcases his talents. He's got his, his, not only has he got like some great sort of metal chops, he's actually a really melodic soloist. And, and he pulls some brilliant faces when he's soloing. He does. He pulls some awesome faces. He's got some of the best solo faces mm. in the business, I think. Even today, it pulls some great faces. Um, again, Danny Strand, uh, you know, he's got a blank canvas here with which he can do pretty much most things, and he doesn't do many of them. I'll be honest, it just feels a Poor little Poor Dennis. No, I, I don't want to... Because he did get a rough deal, I think, and I've got a lot of sympathy for him, and I like him as a person, having watched lots of YouTube interviews with him. I think he's a great bloke, uh, from what I can gather. Um but you think he's a shit guitarist. <laughs> but um, Adrian Smith has definitely oh, yeah. got more yeah. chops about him. Um, so yeah, I, I, and I think you know the live version. Obviously, you know by the time Adrian Smith played a solo on this song for Live After Death, he'd been playing it live for mm. three or four years. So he kind of knew what he was doing with with the tune. But even so, um, I think he would have performed a better solo in nineteen eighty. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's just my uh, my personal opinion. Um, moving uh, on, the next two bit non-events. It's really, a dip. it's a dip. Yeah, it's a bit of a dip. 
like I said before, eight songs. One of them hasn't got lyrics in it. Um, I'm not a massive fan of metal instrumentals and Transylvania don't really do anything for me. Um, I used to skip past it when I could. I'd try and fast forward it when I had it on tape. Um, and it just didn't... It, I don't want to say anything bad about this album, but this is these next songs are probably the weak parts. Yeah, I, I think um, the thing with Transylvania um, is that it is undoubtedly among the cheesiest songs that Murder have ever done. Um, I, I just... Uh, What's that one on Killers that's really cheesy as well, that's got like a really... Kind of like yes, that one. Yeah, yeah. Cheesy so title as some well. of it just edges over into yeah. the, the the rhythms and the beats behind it, kind of just being a bit towards being a bit naff. Genghis Khan, Transylvania, cheesy song titles. Yeah, cheesy riffs. Genghis Khan reminds me of Bad News. We should talk about that yeah. album. We That's should. a niche, it's a niche, niche market. It's uh, yeah, it's a great album though. <laughs> Um, so yeah, it's not Transylvania is not really my highlight. They did they did resurrect it, you know, in the early nineties for Bruce's final tour. I thought you were going to say for Blaze Bailey then. No. <laughs> Show off yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Hey, listen, let's... Blaze, we haven't played this song for years, right? But it's going on the set list tonight. <laughs> I won't hear a bad word said about Blaze Bailey. I know, you, and I won't I, either. I think but he's, a, he's a great singer. I love him as well. I'm just being facetious. Singer. Um, no, they did. They did do it. Uh, Yannick Gers played uh, on it for for the the last tour that he did with Bruce, and um, right. I got I got to say that at the point of the set that they played Transylvania, I would have been going to the toilet. Yeah, um, it's just not that great. Strange World, on the other hand, I've got a bit of a soft spot for Strange World, and I do think it's Dennis Stratton's finest moment. He actually right. plays a really nice, tasteful guitar solo on this. I think maybe like the thing about Dennis Stratton is that um, maybe the faster tempo stuff. Yeah. Maybe it was a bit like ah, play fast, play fast, play the fast, panicking. play loud. Blah, yeah. blah, blah, blah. But with Strange World, I think he relaxes a bit, and I think he gets into the groove, and I think he plays a really nice solo. Hmm. It's not for me. Bit, bit, bit controversial as well. Strange World. Um, because there are rumours abound that it was co-written with a former member, Paul Day, right. who was in Maiden in the uh, uh, around 75, 76, and he hasn't been credited. I'm going to say I don't recall seeing that name anywhere on the uh, inlay sleeve, which we used oh. to study meticulously, which, while we're on it, is very disappointing for this album as an inlay sleeve. Yeah, yeah. But, but the cassette version, I will agree, the album, the vinyl version... There's enough on there to keep I you. Can't, I can't remember you looking. But yeah, I'm not. Uh, this is not one for me either. So yeah, you probably it, dissected it a bit more with the guitar solos on it and stuff. But I'm, I'm not keen. Yeah, it's nice. It's nice. It's got a bit of a psychedelic sort of feel mm. to it. Um, and uh, yeah, it's uh, as as I pointed out in the show notes, uh, it makes me feel like I should be nodding out in a 1980s crack den. Mm. Um, possibly. The least politically correct Iron Maiden song ever, topping, you know, Prowler comes in at number two, maybe. Right. Or maybe 22 Acacia Avenue is still. Yeah, that's up there as well, isn't yeah, it? Up there. But um, Charlotte the Harlot, not mm. the most politically correct uh, song. It, w- it De- wouldn't stand up today, would it? No, it wouldn't. To modern scrutiny. No, and rightfully so, it must be said. Um Dave Murray says his song is based on a true story. Oh, it's all right then. It's fine. If it's a true story, then it's fine. 
Um, and uh, having read through the lyrics a few times, it definitely treads a fine line between being sympathetic social commentary and passing judgment. Mm. It is a bit judgy in places. Mm. Um, it's not 100% misogynistic, but it's not a piece of feminist literary um, no. art. I don't think Jermaine Greer has either. referenced it, has she, in a no. positive uh, no. representation of women in actually, music. I've just, I've just, I've just actually um, reframed my thoughts on this. It is a hundred percent misogynistic. <laughs> right? Okay. <laughs> I don't think, I don't think it can be viewed as anything other. Really, right. I mean, it's a song about. Uh, obviously a, a, a prostitute and and he's tried to write it from the point of view of a guy that's in love with a prostitute and wants to whisk her away um, to a better life somewhere See, it's else. it's nice. Yeah, but it's that white knight thing, isn't it? You know what I mean? Like, maybe she doesn't need saving. You know, maybe she's capable of saving herself. You know? Um, but it's kind of... It, that sort of sentiment of, of trying to be Charlotte the Harlot's saviour is juxtaposed with quite a liberal use of sexist language mm. and is a bit self-defeating, isn't it? So, yeah. um, But overlooking all that, <laughs> I like it. <laughs> it's like Den Dennis. Yeah, they're the <laughs> bits I like. <laughs> Musically, it's good. Yeah, um, it's exciting. It's got another really slow middle Iron Maiden part to a song. Um, yeah, I think musically it's really good, but, you know, lyric, lyrically, possibly not. I wonder if they still perform it live or when it last got an outing. Oh, I don't know. We'll have to, we'll have to try and find out. Yeah. I, 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 I would be surprised if it's something that gets a regular... Maybe they look at the uh, political play. landscape in the country they're playing and think whether or not it would be aligned with what they think. Well, because growing up and living in East London, probably saw a lot of um, Ladies of the Night uh, mm. playing their trade. Is it a trade? I don't know. Oldest I'm, trade in the world. I'm treading, I'm treading on thin ice here. Which leads us to... The greatest, possibly best-known um, eponymous title track slash on the eponymous debut yeah. album song. Yeah. Um, Words is hard uh, of all time. Iron Maiden. Hmm. Are there any others, do you think? I don't know if any other bands have got a, 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 a title track on an eponymous debut album. Like, can you imagine any other bands that, that have done this? No, I can't, actually. Like Bruce no. Springsteen? <laughs> uh, <laughs> It'd be great if you had a song called Bruce Springsteen. <laughs> it, would be, it would be great, wouldn't it? Engelbert Humperdinck. <laughs> yeah. That'd be a good one. So this, in the very nicest possible way, this sounds like one of the first songs you would ever write yeah. if you've got a guitar. But yeah. on the flip side of that, the riff is really awkward. Yeah. If you've ever tried to work out that guitar riff, it's yeah. really, really difficult. And yeah. it's, you know, like when you play an instrument, you know, your fingers get used to moving in certain ways and a lot yeah. of songs are based around the same movements and so on. Not so with this. Yeah. Um, and I think the greatest achievement, the greatest musical achievement on this album is actually finding a harmony part to that riff. Yeah. Which is completely different and goes in a different direction, doesn't it? Yeah. It goes, it descends, doesn't it? So yeah. if you listen to it, the main riff kind of, yeah, it, it, it's kind of more descending. But in, in somehow, somehow it works. It does. And yeah. it's in A. There's not that many Maiden songs that are in A. Wow. On this first album. I especially. bet he manages to get an E... 
a D and a C in there somewhere. There must be somewhere. There must be. Um, it's. I, I bet they've, they've played this at every single live concert for the last 50 years, maybe? 40, yeah. 45 years, probably. Um, yeah. It's not that great a tune, really, is it? But it's no. kind of just one of their songs, which is... Um, obviously associated with them because of the name, but yeah. you just can't imagine going to see them and then them not playing it. I think, you know, like lyrically, um, it's it's an interesting proposition lyrically. Again, I've never listened to the lyrics in any great detail, but I think I know what you're going to say. Well, you know, I can't have a feeling that, that <laughs> Steve Harris might have some oppressed BDSM think. themes running through this song. Maybe that's why his first marriage failed. Maybe it is. Hmm. You know, like, you know, all about the, you know, let me take you to my room, want to show you all my ways, want to see your blood, want you to stand and stare. And it's a bit like, hmm, maybe he's into some kinky stuff that we don't know about. Possibly, possibly. And, and, and you know, maybe while he's doing his BDSM bit, he's reading books about serial killers. Disclaimer, Steve Harris is not into <laughs> BDSM and does not read books about serial killers. Um... But yeah, it's it, it's an interesting song, and and you know, if if you're going to write a song that you play every gig for the rest of your life, I think it's got to be. I mean, it's a signature song. But That's what I was trying to think of when I was yeah. talking. Then signature song, but it's not the best, and it's not the most interesting. No, it's not. Um, yeah, um, you know, like you say, I think it sounds like. A very early attempt at writing a song and fair play to Steve Harris it's a fine early attempt so overall as a track listing it's it, it does sound like a first album because yeah. it doesn't have a consistent sound to it you know the songs feel like stylistically they're all over the place not as in, not in a bad way but they differ greatly from each other don't they lyrically some of them um well, you know, some of them are questionable in their content, uh, which is a sign of the times, but it's great. It's just great. If you take it for what it is, when it was released, the point they were at in the career, it's, you know, yeah. there's not much wrong with it, really, even though there's a couple of tracks I don't like. We'll forgive them. I think it's fair to say that the, the first side of the album is oh, yeah. the stronger side. And I think if you're going to get hooked into a band, I think, um, you know, or if you're going to try and hook people into your debut album you could do a lot worse than those first four songs absolutely okay so let's talk about a little bit about the um, production and uh, the personnel involved in said production and engineering of the album uh, so who produced it so it was produced by Will Malone what how did they end up with him um well it's a bit of a mystery, is that? Nobody's quite sure how they ended up with Will Malone uh, producing the album. Um, this is from um, from Wikipedia, the font of all yep. accurate it'll, knowledge. It'll be 100% true. It then. is. Um, Will Malone was born in 1952 uh, in Hornsey, North London. Um, he's a British music producer and arranger, and he has worked with artists including uh, Black Sabbath, Iron Maiden, Todd Rundgren, uh, the Verve. Ugh. I think he did the um, orchestral arrangement of Bittersweet Symphony. Right, okay. Um, which they obviously got sued for. That's, that's who we blame. The Rolling Stones. Uh, Massive Attack, 
Depeche Mode. Mm. The Mode. We'll have to cover one of their uh, albums. Will Malone um, worked in various rock bands until he joined Morgan Studios as a house arranger and producer, which is maybe how he got the gig, because uh, if you remember, uh, Iron Maiden was mixed at Morgan Studios. So after arranging The Who's Tommy for the London Symphony Orchestra, um, he decided to go freelance, um, and he's best known for his scores for Unfinished Symphony. Sympathy? Symphony? Sympathy? Sympathy. The Mass um, Attack one? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So he's, he's best known for his scores for Unfinished Sympathy by Mass, Massive Attack. Bittersweet Symphony, that's where I'm getting my words mixed up, by The Verve. Uh, and One Caress by Depeche Mode. Right, okay. Um, so his most recent work is... Uh, been done for London Grammar, Basement Jacks, Take That, and Birdie, more, most notable artist that he's worked with uh, recently. Uh, he scored the strings for Danny Boyle's film Trance. Right. And he's currently producing and arranging his ninth album for Italian star Gianni Nanini. Mm. So it seems an obvious choice then to um, be the producer for a hard rock stroke metal band. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, being interested in symphonic arrangements, yeah, you know, it kind of fits perfectly with Charlotte the Harlot and yeah. the Prowler. It's I can't see, um, I can't see what could go wrong. Um, Malone has been criticised by Steve Harris in numerous interviews for being aloof and disinterested during the recording of Iron Maiden. Didn't he say he had his feet up on the mixing desk, like reading a paper or something like that? He did. Shall I read the quote in full? Yes, please. Shall I do it in Steve, Steve Harris's voice? The Yorkshire Steve Harris. Oh, okay. or... Well, the, the, the Cockney no, Steve do, Harris. Yeah, do the Cockney Steve Harris. Oh, I don't know if I can. So, uh, so right, we'd go in there, we'd do a take, and then go in and say to him, what do you think, Will? <laughs> and he'd have his fucking feet up on the mixing desk, reading Country Life or whatever, completely mongled out of his head. <laughs> and he'd look over the top of it and go... Oh, I think you can do better. Yeah. That's a great, that's a good impression. I think I transitioned through about five different accents during that thing. Um, And in the end, uh, Harris uh, claimed that uh, we could have taken a complete stranger off the street and it probably would have sounded just the same. (laughs) Bye, you butler. (laughs) (laughs) Bit of finger pointing? Or do you think it actually is true? Well, do you know what? I, I don't... If you listen to the album, it doesn't feel produced, does it? No, not really. No. I mean, there's a few little bits in there, like, um, you know, creative uses of delay and reverb and, uh, and, and you know, other effects and stuff. But it doesn't, it feels quite raw mm. as an album. So six months after its release, um, Paul Diano said that he, find, he found the album um, rather embarrassing. Why? I think because of the production. All oh, right. Okay. I think they. I think they were universally unhappy with with how it sounded, um, and uh, and was anxious to have a, 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 a basically a, what he said would be a shit hot follow up, um, and he said um, the songs are strong enough on stage, on record though they sound a little weak. Okay, so it was our first album, and it was an achievement in a way to have even got it out. But production-wise, when I listen and compare it to some of the LPs I have at home, I think, well, for, I'll say it, for fuck's sake, what's going on? 
it's pretty gritty. If you were going to be, you would have thought, if you're a producer, you go see a band live, you're taking how they sound live and you try and get that. That's like your starting point, isn't it? Whereas we've seen loads of footage of them around that time and it's amazing. But the albums, that's why I felt like the album was a bit underwhelming when I first yeah. listened to it. Yeah. Um, yeah, it just felt a bit weak. So I kind of agree with him on that. Yeah. Dan, I would later recall to biographer Mick Wall that um, you could tell he thought it was far too big to be messing around with something like this. I don't even know why he bothered showing up most days. Apart from that, apart he really from, liked him. Apart from that, it was a really productive yeah. Uh, yeah. working really, partnership. And he loved the album. Um, so, um, and as engineer on the first Maiden album, uh, Martin Levin, who went on to have a distinguished career as a producer and engineer himself, um, Harris says, um, I think he was good, thank God, talking about Martin Levin. Uh, we actually got some good sounds down. Levin's engineering skills facilitated the young and experienced Maiden and made the debut album what it is. Mm-hmm. Very so good. I think, I think it's, it's, you know, I, I think Will Malone might be the sort of pantomime <clears throat> villain in the whole thing and Martin Levin might just be... Um, Robin Hood. Oh, He's done all right for himself, though. Will Malone. Let's face it. He has, yeah, yeah. He didn't I, harm his career, did it? I, I think. I think it's fair to say, you know, looking at Malone's career, that his interests are not in producing metal bands. Um, his majority of credits are for composing, conducting, and arranging, um, and all those credits uh, for Sabbath, The Who, Rick Wakeman, etc., are all prior to nineteen eighty. Um, and no doubt he's a very, very well-respected and hugely talented composer and arranger. And, and listening to the few interviews that he's given online, um, I think it's fair to say that his approach to the creative process probably pulls apart from Steve Harris. In an interview that he did with the El Vinyl podcast in 2020, Malone describes his approach to recording uh, some of his early works, his own early works, uh, like so... There wasn't a lot of effort put into creating a sound on that album. Remember, this was all being done on downtime. Every instrument was being recorded as quickly as possible. And if, say, the mic was playing up to a delightful degree, then we'd keep it. In other words, there was no attention paid to the technical side of it. It was all about the sound and the feel of it. I mean, for example, there's albums that come out now which are so perfect that they're just so bland. They're absolutely beautiful, beautiful technically but they're just kind of meaningless in terms of their emotional involvement. Which is kind of interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I, I don't know that it completely explains his disinterest mm-hmm. in the band themselves, but obviously Steve Harris is a very intense... Yeah, it's his ship, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. And he's, 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 he's got this very intense work ethic mm-hmm. where, you know, it's like keep rehearsing, keep working, mm. keep writing, just on it all the time. And mm. I think Will Malone's a little bit more relaxed yeah. than that. So there was probably a bit of a clash of personalities and working styles there. Um, you know, Malone uh, went on to say in this interview, I think a lot of the early stuff worked better because it wasn't laboured over. It, was put, it wasn't put on a computer and changed, you know, micromanaged as it were. It seems to me that the first time you do an overdub, it's fresh and you're hitting it in the way it feels, you know. And the more you do it, the more you overdub the same track, the more you lose that original feeling of this is something new and exciting. Well, it does sound like a band in a room, doesn't it? So that's, you know, he's kind of saying that we didn't overdo it. 
we didn't overproduce it, which is absolutely right. But I think he might have taken the um, idea of underproducing something to yeah. its extremes by the sound of it. Um, so going on, you know, what we've just said, uh, playing devil's advocate just for a second, maybe his laid back approach to the recording process um, with little interest in the technical side of it mm. was mistaken by the band for disinterest. Do you know what I read? I read that Rick Rubin does the same thing and people think he's like a creative production genius. Right. You know, like he just checks in every so often with bands. He's not there right. like saying, right, I think we need to tighten up that part of the song a bit and, or, you know, add so-and-so to this bit. He kind of just, it's more like a, a light touch approach, which sounds like this, Yeah. but this has been portrayed in a bit of a negative light, hasn't it? Whereas because obviously Rick Rubin's so successful, it's seen as being a genius approach by him. Well, maybe Rick Rubin should produce Iron Maiden. That'd be good. See what happens. That'd be good. Not that Iron Maiden need producing now, but... Probably not. You know. Do you think Rick Rubin reads Country Life? (laughs) Maybe. Later in the same interview, Malone goes on to say, I go into the studio, this is talking about when he's doing his string arranging and stuff. Um, I go into the studio, we record the strings, I listen back to them. Uh, Wonderful. What happens to it after that is nothing to do with me. My kick comes from hearing them, the arrangements being played, which confirms that producing a relatively new up-and-coming heavy metal band probably wasn't how he wanted to spend the cold, grey, foggy, drizzly January of 1980. You know, like all, all of that, you know, he, he, he gets his kicks elsewhere, mm. his, his approach is different, you know, um, and his interest is in composing and arranging, not producing metal bands. Um, it's interesting to note that Malone has never in a single interview that I can find, talked about producing Iron Maiden. Right, okay. Ever. Um, which either he's never been asked about it, which I'm sure he has. So I'm sure somebody's asked him about it, or he's just not interested in talking about it. But from his radio silence, I think it's pretty clear that it's not a career high. It's probably not his, yeah, his, um, his proudest his proudest uh, moment when he looks back on that. Yeah. Or his proudest bits of work. <laughs> So, how did the album come out to sound the way that it did? And I think, as we've touched on, I think Martin Levin probably has had an as influential influential a hand in in, in the album coming out the way it did as anyone else. Um, he was there like throughout the whole thing. Um, he was responsible for engineering the whole thing. He pretty much mixed it single-handedly with the band's um, presence and input. Was he um, attached to the studio or Will Malone, were they, did Um, they work together? Do you know? They were. Did not say anything? No, he he was attached to the studio. Okay. Um, If I can find it, there was a a photograph of uh, of an advert for Morgan Studio, that was uh, listed in uh, one of the music magazines, and this is from 1975. 
and uh, Martin Levin is listed as one of the house engineers. Right. So it's very, very possible that uh, Will Malone and Martin Levin had probably worked together pre- previous to the uh, right. to the Iron Maiden uh, album. So just a little bit of uh, history about uh, Martin Levin. Um, I'll read this from uh, from Wikipedia again, the font of all right. accurate knowledge. Knowledge. Um, Levin began his career as a tea boy at Morgan Studios in London uh, in 1971, um, and he uh, obviously rose through the ranks through the years to become an engineer and producer. Um, his album credits as a producer include John Martin's Grace and Danger, which is an amazing album right. um, from John Martin's 80s period. Um, production on it's fantastic. Um, and uh, Ralph McTell, Water of Dreams. Classics. I, uh, well, well, that's a classic. Yeah, I mean, Ralph McTell is a, stal- a stalwart again, a stalwart of the British folk scene. Mm. Although Levin's career went in a slightly different direction after 1982, um, when Andrew Lloyd Webber contracted him to supervise the sound design for the original production of the musical Song and Dance at the oh. Palace Theatre in London. So he kind of got into um, sound sound design and sound production for, for musicals and musicals, such, yeah. um, for which he won numerous awards, um, none of which I can uh, reference right now. Um, but he's a, an award-winning sound designer, so, you know, obviously very... Um, very good. Sounds like he rescued this album. Well, he did, yes. Yeah. Um I emailed Martin Levin. Did you? Yeah. I didn't, I didn't dare email Will Malone because I thought he might just tell me to do one yeah. um, or ghost me. Which I, I can't imagine Martin Levin would have had enough time to reply to you. It, do you know what? Martin Levin is a very nice man. All right. And he did indeed reply to us. Wow. With, with something of an exclusive, <laughs> I have to say. It's, I mean, you know, as far as exclusives go, it's not the most earth-shattering, no. but... It's still an exclusive nonetheless. We'll take it. At this stage, this early stage in our our, podcasting um, careers, we'll take it. Early doors, we'll have this. Um, So I I found a video on YouTube called Circle of... uh, The channel's called Circle of Tone, in which the guy presenting talks about how to get the Iron Maiden sound um, from the first first album. Um, And he uh, links this to uh, a specific microphone. Uh, called a Unidyne 545 dynamic microphone, um, which has been photographed on in front of Dave Murray's cabs on stage. So um, the guy on Circular Tone got a hold of this microphone and uh, experimented with it right. and got an incredibly accurate guitar sound that, to my ear, is indistinguishable from right. the original Maiden album. Um, so I, I thought I'd ask Martin Levin about this, um, and he, he very kindly replied, took time out of his day to, to reply to somebody he's never met <laughs> and has no credentials, being that this is the first podcast yep. we've ever produced. The inaugural one. The inaugural, it's a good word, I like it. Um, we should have word bingo, where you, <laughs> if you can get a word in, you, you get points. Um, so he replied, and, he, and, he, and he, I asked him about that microphone, and he said, the first thing I can tell you is that I have never used a Unidyne 545 dynamic microphone ever! Exclamation mark. Um, his, my favourites for guitar amps back then would have been either a Neumann U87 or a Shure SM57, 
or possibly a Bayer M160. In fact, they are still my favourites. Not many studios had the uh, M160, so at Kingsway Studios, where it was recorded, I would likely it would likely have been one of the other two. So that bloke on Circle of Tones talking utter shit. Well, he's, he's certainly uh, not right about the choice of microphone, but in terms of the result that he got, he is right. Spoken like a politician. Well done. <laughs> Thank you. I, I am well um. <laughs> um I then I then asked uh, Martin Levin about um, Dennis Stratton's uh, involvement in the production of the album and the arranging of uh, guitar and vocal harmonies and such. Um, and Martin Levin responded, I mean, obviously this is like 40 odd years ago in a very long and illustrious career. Mm. Um, and, you know, as with any creative, the most exciting project is the next one. Mm. So he's probably not really, you know, thinking about Maiden's debut album as being, again, a pinnacle in his career. No, um, he probably sat there just thinking it's just another new band. You're not sitting there thinking, right, this is Iron Maiden's first album and they're yeah. going to be around in, you know, 40-odd years still. And be yeah. one of the, so this is a really, really historical album that I'm recording here. Probably not going to be that, is it? No. Um, like, th- there, is a, there is a story about... Um, uh, Dennis Stratton uh, working with Martin overnight and layering up guitar parts and vocal harmonies on um, Phantom of the Opera. I wonder what Steve thought of that. Well, it wasn't so much Steve, apparently. It was Rod. Right, big Rod. Rod, Rod Smallwood, the Sheriff of Huddersfield. Uh, yeah. Um, and, I, and I don't have to do it. I can actually do the accent for, for Rod Smallwood. Go on, then. I don't actually have to, um, have to do a, a crap Cockney accent. Um, apparently... Having spent all night laying up all these harmonies and making Phantom of the Opera sound epic, uh, Rod Smallwood came in to the studio in the morning, listened, took one listen and went, it sounds like fucking Queen! Um, and then uh, they had to remove quite a lot of it. But um, you listen to it and there's still loads of it on. You think, oh, yeah. how much was actually on it? Yeah, Well, he must have proper laid it up. It still sounds really layered up now, yeah. you know, like when you listen to it now. So, and they must have liked how it sounded because it does really sound like a lot of work has gone into those bits of the songs. You know, yeah. like there's there's been a lot of thought into it. So he might have said that, but you know, he, if him and Steve Harris probably had the power to say, "Now nah, we don't want that on it." Yeah. But you know, they left it on. So, well, you know, fair play to Dennis Stratton. Fair play to him. Absolutely, it deserves a bit of good press in this podcast, doesn't it? Does. It? <laughs> it does. Listen, I'm not all against him. Um, but I asked Martin about this working relationship with Dennis Stratton and um, um, he replied with, I don't remember much about that. Uh, I do recall recording a lot of harmony guitars for the Phantom of the Opera track, but I don't recall Rod Smallwood's objections as you described. I can't say that he didn't object, I just don't remember. Sorry. Right. So it could have happened. If you believe Dennis Stratton, it did. Um, it might be 40-odd years' worth of resentment stories being amplified, you know, exaggerations. And that's where you get to, you know, the yeah. story that we have now. Either way, it sounds good. I think he did a cracking job on it. If, he did. You know. um, I asked him also about working alongside Will Malone right. and what that experience was like. Um, and he replied, I remember enjoying working alongside Will and have fond memories of it. He was slash is a very talented musician, but I was never very sure that heavy metal was his thing. Very diplomatic. Very diplomatic, so to speak. To be honest, it probably wasn't totally my thing, but I still very much enjoyed making the album. I do, however, 
remember spending lots of time working directly with the band through the mixing process. And who knows, hopefully they were happy with it. So it sounds to me like he's trying to rescue this album Mm -hmm. um, that has been somewhat underproduced. Um, And, you know, like he says, hopefully they were happy with it. And we know historically that they were less than happy with it, really. But I think Martin Levin's... um, I think his influence and his uh, talents and abilities really rescued this album from certain... Disaster, and he sounds like a nice bloke. He is a nice well. bloke. You know, he put right at the end um, when we set up for the mixing in Studio Three at Morgan Studios. Uh, I remember getting some extra monitors brought into the control room so we could double up the normal system. Much fun was had. I nice. Hope, I hope that's helpful. Best wishes, Martin. Bless him. Yeah, I mean, you know, what a great guy. Um, and you know, okay. The album might sound a little underproduced, but it's still an exciting record to listen to, I think. And it sounds better than Unjustice for All. Yes. Although, to be fair... Most albums do. Most albums sound better than Unjustice for All. Let's talk about the gear that they used. Um, To make this album, or to help make this album sound the way it did... um, I think it's fair to say that Paul Diano used a microphone. Yeah. I'm guessing. Yeah. Um, and I'm going to further guess that having it been mentioned um, earlier, I've, I'm going to guess that Martin Levin probably went with a U87, a Neumann U87, which is a, a classic studio um, condenser microphone, which can be used for overheads, vocals, guitar cabs, the whole thing. So I'm guessing if, if that microphone was available at Morgan Studios, or Kingsway Studios, sorry, uh, where it was recorded, he probably used that. Right. I'm going to guess. Clive Burr, I believe, used paste symbols. I believe, is it is it paste? I don't know. It, I've always said paste. It looks like paste. I might be wrong. Maybe Paiste. Paiste. I'm sure I've seen, I've heard Nicole McBrain pronounce it in a really weird I way. don't think he's probably a good person to be basing it on. No, like maybe not. He makes it up as he goes along. Um, Ludwig drums. Uh, and um, from what I can tell from this shot of him brandishing his sticks on the Killers tour. Oh, it's not, that's the Maiden tour, is that? Judging by the backdrop. Um, Tama cymbal stands. Right. So, I reckon first album, you maybe not got that much cash and what's in live videos around the time might come through once you've got a bit of money, you know, together. So who knows what they used on the actual album itself? Because I've, you know, what I've got down for Steve Harris is you don't really know, do you? Because, you know, once you get more money and you get endorsements and things like that, your gear changes, doesn't it? It does. It does change. Um, What we do know about um, Clive Burr's drum kit is that it was really quite big. Right, okay. Um, So big. Proper 80s style drum kit. Yeah. So big, in fact, that um, it didn't fit in the drum booth at Kingsway. That is big. That is big, yeah. And they ended up setting him up in the reception area uh, next to the coffee machine. He must be get through, like, setting these drums up and think, I've got to get rid of some of this stuff. You'd think so, wouldn't you? But, I mean, you know, maybe a big big drum kit, big... Maybe. Other things. Um, 
or, or big drum kit, small other things, yeah. as the case might be. Yeah. Um, but yeah, um, so there you go. Um, the, the drums on Iron Maiden were recorded next to the coffee machine in the reception area. <laughs> which is nice, isn't it? It is. Um, which I think, again, is testament to Martin Levin's talents and abilities. Yeah, you if know. you can make you know, an area in reception where there's a coffee machine sound good for drums, you probably know what you're doing a bit, yeah, don't you? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Um, Steve Harris, do you want to talk about Steve Harris's rig? Yep. Being the resident bass player of the... Yeah. Uh, so Steve Harris, Steve Harris's rig, I mean, amp-wise, probably Marshall and High Watt, although there's pictures of all kinds of different stuff that he was using around that era. Um, yeah, like an Ampeg Carb, maybe a PV musician head as well. So there are probably lots and lots of different things that he used. Um, however, the one constant really is the bass. So the, he's, generally he's played a Fender Precision bass, apart from a brief period of time around 1983, 84 on Peace of Mindish era when he, I think he used a Lado bass and a, a, um, an Ibanez bass for a bit. But on this album, Fender Precision bass, flat wound strings, which is not usually associated with metal, um, really heavy strings. Um, I think his bass is one of the old style 50s models where it's got a big old baseball bat, thickness neck. Um, but the key to his sound is how he plays. I think you could probably put any bass in Steve Harris's hands and it would sound like Steve Harris just because of how he actually plays it. Scott Ian said, Steve Harris's right hand, that's the essence of heavy metal. And he's probably right. I think, I think, I think probably Scott Ian's got a point. I think he probably has got a point. And I think the bass that he's used over the years, it does look like he's changed basses as time goes on, but I think he had that blue sparkle one. And then he had it finished in like a checkerboard, maybe. And then he had a West Ham sign put on it at one point. So um, I'm sure he's not used the same, exactly the same bass for 40-odd years. Um, but yeah, it's generally Fender Precision basses with flat-wound strings. Flat-wound strings are normally used for like Soul and Motown. Um, but just because of how he plays, he seems to make him sound good within the context of the well, band. They're a bit smoother, aren't they? So yeah. maybe it saves his fingertips a bit. Yes, his little fingertips. You're I probably mean, right. You know, if you if you if you slap in a, a string with that regularity, you're going to get bl- blisters, aren't you? And he plays with his first and third finger on his right hand, which is not normally how you would play uh, bass with your fingers. Misses that, out the it, old middle finger. Is that so he can flip the bird? At I think you're probably right. While he's playing. Yeah. And or maybe he uses his middle finger for something else. And I think, it, and like I've mentioned earlier, he doesn't hit the strings very hard, uh, which is probably how he can keep the speed going for longer periods of time because he's not having to kind of, you know, whack away at the strings and um, get the hard work put in that way. So, yeah, that's Steve Harris, really. Yeah. Very, very single pickup guitar, nothing too complicated, four strings, um, yeah. and that's it. And a, 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 a absolute veritable, um, I'm going to say the word cornucopia. Oh, God. Is that right? <laughs> I don't know. There's another word that I don't know the full meaning of. But a lot of different amps yep. at the same time. If you there, there are shots of him playing live and he's got a PV, um, a high watt and a Sun Coliseum bass amp all running different cabs at the same time. Blimey. Which... See, that screams out like a band who have not yet got enough money together to be able yeah. to go out and buy exactly what they want, doesn't it? Yeah. It's like, get what you can, when you can get it, what you can afford, which means you cobble together what you can. Yeah. I reckon as soon as they've done that tour and then 
you know, a couple of tours time, probably settled on something completely yeah. different. And and a lot of it's, in fact, all of it is solid state mm. gear as well. There's no valve uh, amps here. It's all solid state. So it's probably a bit more roadworthy and a bit more reliable. Um, and uh, yeah, I noticed that the, the Hiwat and the PV have, have both got graphic EQs as well. Huh? So, which I think for the time was quite, um, yeah. was it quite advanced on a Probably. On an amp? I think so, yeah. I think it's kind of mid 80s where yeah. they came in a bit more on Trace Elliott's. Yeah. It does feel like, is it the vanguard of solid state bass amp technology there? And as you went further through Iron Maiden's live shows, a lot of their amps were covered up, weren't they, by stage sets and so on. So you yeah. didn't really, couldn't really monitor what he was using through the years. But I think it's safe to say he's already kept, always kept a relatively simple setup. Yeah, yeah. And lots of stripy trousers. I think the stripy trousers are a key element of his tone. Yeah, yeah. I think you're probably right. All that tension. Yeah. You know, I, th- I think maybe... Um, Having tight trousers mm. takes your mind away from how yeah. much your fingers hurt. Is that what you were wearing on the theme tune towards yes. the end? Yeah, yeah. You don't really think a maiden has been like a spandex band, but they really were for a while, oh, weren't totally, they? Yeah. <laughs> totally, yeah. Totally were. Watch that Live After Death video. They've got a frightening array of it. Yeah. That bright blue one that Dave Murray's wearing. Maybe that's why he pulls them faces. Maybe it is. Maybe. Maybe it is. So, is that all we need to say about Steve Harris's... Gear, yeah. So, um, Dave Murray very famously um, used a uh, 1957 Fender Strat mainly, which just like any old 57 Strat. Well, no, it wasn't any old 57 Strat. As, now you mention it, um, it was once owned by Paul Kossoff Never of, heard of him. Free Fame. I'm all right, all right now. Yeah. No, are you, are you are you all right now? <laughs> um, so, but it was it had been heavily modded, I think, by the time Dave Murray got hold of it. Um, it had, it had, had um, some Dimasio Super Distortion pickups, um, or a Dimasio Super Distortion pickup fitted to the bridge. Uh, the middle pickup was uh, stock, Fender right. single coil, and the Dimasio uh, Path pickup in the neck. Are any of those the ones that are like you know the the like double coil ones in a, yeah. in a single coil fitting? Yeah, so uh, the um, right. the the super distortion and the Dimaggio path pickup are both humbucker pickups. Right, that's what I meant. Yeah. Humbucker. Yeah, um, and and as um, Dave Murray said in a previous interview, um, uh, there's a little bit of history behind the guitar. Um, it used to belong to Paul Kossoff of Free, and I bought it in 1976, a year after he died. Um, I saw it advertised in an English magazine called Melody Maker. Can you imagine that? Mm. Like advertising a rock god's guitar in Melody Maker for sale. Like now it'd be on Reverb, eBay. It'd be like capital letters, exclamation marks. Yeah. I think though, 1976, when was Free's heyday? Oh, uh, I think they probably peaked around about 70, 71 maybe. Right. So there's not that weight of history behind it at that point is there no I don't think so and and because I, I, I don't think Paul Kossoff had been dead for a long time right by that point either um, so you know it, I don't think it had the weight of history behind it um, but uh, yeah I saw this advertisement in an English magazine called Melody Maker and I went down and checked it out I got the serial numbers to make sure that it was his guitar he used that guitar a lot um, on a lot of free 
I actually saw him many years ago using it during a free performance of My Brother Jake on an English television show called Top of the Pops. They were one of my favourite bands. And I had to have that guitar because it belonged to Kossoff. I paid about $1,400 for it. I wonder which, what that is. Yeah. Equivalent. Yeah, maybe, I don't know. Times it by five. A, a tenner. Mm. Um, in 19, which in 1976 was quite a bit of money, but I didn't care. I just sold everything I had so I could get it. Um, and then I used it from then on. It just felt like I was holding a piece of magic because he used to be, he used to use this guitar. Um, so there you go. It's okay. definitely Paul Kossoff's guitar. I wonder um, how much it's worth now. Oh, Imagine. It would be worth a ton, but he doesn't use it anymore. Um, um, he, he stopped touring with it quite a few years ago. Um, as he said in the same interview, uh, I used to guard, my, uh, guard it with my life. Um, but it did start to get a few little knocks on it from general wear and tear. Uh, so I just decided to retire it. It's sitting in my mother's house now, though I do pick it up now and again. Oh. Maybe his mother picks it up as well. Yeah, I'd like to think that Mrs. Murray, if she's still with us... Um, I bet she does. I bet she rocks out. I bet she stands on couch like I used to and mimes yep. along to Live yep. After Death. Yep. Um, so there you go. That's That was his main squeeze. For, for quite a long time. Um, he also had a, a backup 1970 Fender Strat with right. the same modifications. Um, Amps-wise, um, he mainly has been photographed in, standing in front of Marshalls. Uh, That's under, unusual for metal bands in the 80s, it isn't is, it? It is. At that time, <laughs> Thinking I'm, outside the box. <laughs> hardly anyone else was doing that at the time. Hmm. Um, so he was using 100-watt uh, Marshall Super League Plexis. Um, and uh, Marshall 50-watt super lead, right. mainly. Um, although, on the Ruskin Arms gig, it does appear to be standing in front of a high-watt. I'm not sure what I think about that. Didn't you have a high-watt once? No. No, sorry. No, I didn't. How dare you? You offended. <laughs> sorry no, about that. No, I don't mind high-watt, but they're just a very different beast to yeah. Marshall's. Yeah. Um, they're, a, they're a lot cleaner, a lot more clean headroom. Did we meet Jim Marshall once? We did. A guitar uh, show. A guitar show, yeah. He signed a picture for me. Yeah, I'd He's, forgotten about that. Yeah, he signed it. Did he die shortly after? Probably. I, it, I don't know. I'm not sure. Right. It, um, but yeah, he, he signed my poster right. to Bill. All right, okay. And I was too polite to to tell him that my name was Phil. I'm surprised that you didn't tell him. We must have only been I, about 12 or 13. Yeah. Lippy, gobby little buggers. Yeah, well, there you go. So, um, so yeah, so... I think, um, you know, that classic Marshall sound was captured. Uh, it's an integral part of the album, I think, um, and, and was captured heroically by Martin Levin. Um, Effects-wise, uh, Dave Murray, actually, for the time, had quite an extensive ef- uh, effects board, um, mainly MXR-based. What, even on the first album? Yeah, yeah, right. and you can hear, like, you know, he's, he's, he's using... Um, an MXR Phase 90, which you can definitely hear on things like Strange World right. and what have you. Um, he's also using an MXR Microamp, a 10-band EQ, an MXR Distortion Plus, and, of course, Crybaby Wire. Yep. Um, all these, these effects are very much um, of their time. Late seven, mid to late 70s, early 80s. Right. Um, if you think about it, like at the time, you had MXR, Boss, 
Um, Dodd. Dodd. <laughs> Electroharmonics. So there weren't that many companies. Maybe Ibanez had brought out the Tube Screamer mm-hmm. uh, by that point. Um, so, yeah, so, you know, for that time, I mean, a lot of bands at that time, you know, might have used, like, just the amp and maybe a boost or mm-hmm. a distortion pedal to kick it up the ass, you know. Um, He's a tone connoisseur. He is. He is. He is. Um, Dennis Stratton, moving on to Dennis. Um, His main guitar was a 1972 Gibson Les Paul Custom. Nice. Which very recently appeared on Reverb. Did you buy it? For sale. Well, I didn't have the £25,000 asking price to hand at the time. But if I did... I probably still wouldn't have bought it. Yeah. Les Paul's not really my bag anymore. Um, but, you know, it's a nice guitar, although he has stripped the finish off it. I was going to say, I thought they were black with gold pickups and gold yeah. hardware. No, no, well, his were a, um, a, a sunburst. Right, okay. Um, but, yeah, he stripped the finish off it um, for some reason. Um, and, it, and, and it actually came with a letter. Do you want me to read the letter? So is he selling this? Is it his Well, gift? he was at the time. I don't know if he's sold it or not. But, right. Um, what I mean is, at this point, it yeah. was his guitar. He was selling it, and he had this yeah. note to go with it. Right. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So the the letter of provenance uh, reads uh, like so: "To whom it may concern, and it must be said that Dennis Stratton has super neat handwriting." Does he? Yeah. Yeah. Like really neat. Let's have a look. Like. Oh, very good. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I bought this Les Paul uh, this Les Paul Custom in 1975, just before RDB Remus Down Boulevard, which was his yep. band before Maiden, uh, went on two tours of Europe and Scandinavia with Status Quo. This same guitar was used on all recordings, live tours, and TV appearances with Iron Maiden, 1979 through 1980. Um, the small dig at the top of the guitar is where I knocked my front tooth out standing on the drum riser in Germany supporting Kiss when he says standing on the drum riser I think he might mean falling off the yeah. drum riser um, I stand up all the time and don't knock teeth out yeah, yeah okay yeah. Um, uh the same guitar was used from 1980 to 1986 with Lionheart for all recordings, tours and TV appearances. I then used the same guitar from 1990 to 1998 with Praying Mantis on all tours and recordings. I was then endorsed by Charvel Jackson. I felt that as I got older and my style of playing changed slightly, I found the Charvel Jacksons were lighter and faster. And with the... Not that neat, then, is it? No, it's not that neat. I can't read that. And with the whammy bar um, suited the music we were playing somewhere in all those years, I took the guitar to Dick Knight, a very famous guitar maker and restorer, as I wanted to take off the red sunburst. And I have it... Why would you do that? I have no idea. And have it all one colour. Sadly, Dick passed away just after after completing the work. Maybe, Did he not do a very good job of it? Well, I don't know. Maybe, maybe, uh, maybe he inhaled the uh, original maybe. natural finish, and maybe, yeah, uh, you know, it affected his lungs. It's just speculation. Speculation, yeah, it's probably not true. And I'm now endorsed by 
that looks like Capri Sun, which is it a, is. Which is a, 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 it is a, delicious, a and I'd be endorsed by if they yeah. offered. It's now endorsed by Capri Sun guitars, <laughs> <laughs> and also have a signature guitar made by Dan McPherson, not Chiara. D W Stratton. Right, yeah, okay. Not God. So there you go. That's um, So, you know, it very clearly states there that he used the guitar on all tours and TV appearances with Iron Maiden in uh, 1979 to 1980. Now, let's not forget that Dennis Stratton was only in Iron Maiden for 10 months. Was he now? Which, that guitar saw a lot of action, as did Dennis. Um, so there you go. Um, there's a bit of a blurb with, with, with all that that says pretty much the same thing um, in 1979 Dennis Stratton joined upcoming band Iron Maiden and the iconic album Iron Maiden was recorded and released the same year no it wasn't it was recorded and released in 1980 just being a bit putting my pedantic hat on there um, this beautiful Les Paul custom was played on that first iconic Iron Maiden album famous for songs such as Running Free and Phantom of the Opera it was a breakthrough album for Iron Maiden marking their mark Sorry, making their mark, not marking their mark. Making their mark in the heavy metal world. This guitar was used to record that first album and was used on all Iron Maiden gigs, TV appearances and tours from 79 to 80. Is he playing the opening bit of Prowler? I think he is actually, yeah. I think he is. Right, okay. Yeah, because the lead bit's got a tremolo whammy bit on it, isn't it? Which he yeah. didn't have. Yeah. Oh. So, so there you go, that's his uh, Les Paul Custom. Um, which probably isn't for sale anymore. Um, he also was known for playing a Gibson Firebird. Very nice. So obviously liked his Gibsons and his humbucking guitars. Mm. Um, Look a bit Brian May-esque with his uh, wizard sleeves there. Yeah, and his red leather pants. Very good, yeah. Which were, I think were at odds with everything that Paul Diano was wearing. I think so, yeah. Um, and the rest of the band. I, you know, I, I, I think you can see on the Women in Uniform video why he's barely in any of the shots. I can't remember that video. I, might, I need to go watch it. It's been completely, almost completely edited out of the video. Erased from existence. Yeah, I think, but I think by that point, Rod Smallwood knew that he was... On his way out. On his way out. Um, anyway, we'll move on to that in a bit when we talk, eventually talk about Dennis Stratton, um, which we are doing now. Um, Three hours in. Yeah. <laughs> he... he um, he, uh, he also has been photographed in front of Marshall 100 watt Super Lead Plexis, same as uh, Dave Murray, and Marshall JMP 2203 Mark II Master Lead 100 watt heads. Right. Um, so, you know, he's using that quintessentially heavy metal setup Marshall 100 watt tops and 412 mm. cabs. Um, there's not a lot of info on what pedals and pickups and such that he used I'm going to assume that the pickups from the photos that I've seen of his guitars are all stock um, and he took the covers off or did, would they not have had one on I thought uh, customs had covers on pickup yeah covers. I think they did he, he probably might have taken right. the covers off at least or replaced them um, so I managed to find um, a, a picture online of Iron Maiden playing at Reading in 1980 and Dennis Stratton's pedal board Mm. is barely visible through the fireworks and the fog um, on stage. And it's not, you can't, on the photo that I've printed out, I think I was running out of ink, so that doesn't didn't, actually... Didn't look, help you very much, no, did it? No, oh. like it looked like anything. But from, from blowing up this um, this image, 
I kind of feel like he's using similar thing to Dave Money. So he's got uh, an MXR micro amp, I think, right. what looks like, a wah pedal, um, possibly an MXR stereo chorus, um, possibly an MXR distortion plus or distortion two. Um, it's hard to tell. Um, an MXR Dynacomp, possibly. Right. Uh, MXR Blue Box, which I think is a bit unlikely, given that it's a weird octave effect. Um, or possibly a Dodd Overdrive Preamp 250. Did you have one of them? I did, yeah. But not an original. Right. I had a Chinese uh, knockoff. Right. Um, so, yeah, very similar sort of setup to Dave Money, which kind of, you know, lends, it, lends itself to, um, you know, the, 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 the guitars on the original Maiden album, there's not much between them, really. Like, when you listen to Tonally, they are quite similar. Are they panned? They are panned, You're saying hard yeah. panned. Yeah. They are hard panned. Uh, so, yeah. Like, you know, I, I, I think I think the, the you know, um, humbucking guitars, martial amps, MXR, MXR, effects yeah. pedals... You know, nothing, nothing like fancy by today's standards, but you know, at what the time, what, what more, more do well, exactly. you need? What more do you need? Tony's yeah. in the fingertips, exactly. It really is. Um, so yeah, that, that pretty much covers the gear that they're using uh, around the time of recording the album. Behind every great album, there's a drama. If you think about Fleetwood Mac's rumours... Yeah, and it's up there with those, isn't it? It's up there with those dramas, except there's probably not as much sex. Yeah, and cocaine. And cocaine. And other yeah. things. Um, sorry, just have a slip of tea. So, and the drama sort of centres around Dennis Stratton. He's the forgotten man, isn't he? He is the forgotten man. Because if you think Paul Diano, his he only Paul Diano was only on one more album. Yeah. To Dennis Stratton. But Dennis Stratton's just completely forgotten, really. But like we said, you know, he was only in the band for ten months. And I think I think it's easy to forget what he went through in those ten months. Mm. Um so he joined the band in December seventy nine. And by October 1980, he'd left. Right. He'd been booted out. Um, and that was immediately following uh, the tour, the European tour that they did with Kiss. Um, so during those 10 months, this is what he got up to with the band. Played on the debut album and recorded that in January, January of 1980. Appeared on Top of the Pops on February the 22nd, 1980. Toured on the Metal for Mothers tour with Motorhead, Saxon and Samson. Good lineup. All of which released albums that year. Yep. Uh, that was uh, February 1st to February 11th. Toured in support of Judas Priest on the British leg of their British Steel tour, March 7th to April the 1st. Then he toured the debut album from April 1st to April to August 23rd. Uh, the last show of that tour was the Reading Festival, which was recorded for the BBC, which is on Spotify. Right. And I think you can hear the version of Prowler 
And it's an absolute bloody miracle how they all come in on time. You know what you were saying about the intro? Yeah, I still can't being count. a bit like, yeah, yeah. It's like that, but 50 times worse. Right, somehow, okay. Clive Burr manages to bring everybody in. God bless Clive Burr. At the same time. Um, and I'm going to say, I'm going to say it again, Stratton's playing on that BBC recording of the Reading Festival gig is a bit, ooh, a bit questionable. Um and then after that, toured in support of Kiss on the European leg of their Unmasked tour, which is when they, I think they'd lost the first paint. And oh, yeah. And then people just thought, put it back on, please. Yeah. Well, I think as one journalist at the time said, uh, what ugly bastards they all turned out to be. <laughs> um, so, yeah, and that was August 29th to October the 13th. And then they played on and appeared in the video. I say appeared in inverted commas appeared in the video for Women in Uniform, uh, which was released on October 27th, 1980. Uh, the video was shot at the Rainbow Theatre. I forget about that song. Yeah. Well, it was a got... cover, wasn't it? It was a Skyhooks song right, okay. originally. I wonder who, whose idea that was. Do you think it was like, you know, I don't know. Yeah. It seems like an odd choice, doesn't it? It does. It does. Um, so, so, yeah. So, you know, that was Stratton, that video shoot was Stratton's last involvement with the band so why did he leave why did he leave Julian I don't know you tell me Phil why did he leave well I don't think he left I have a feeling you're going to tell me that it's quite a sad story I think he was pushed by Rod very possibly by Rod Stephen Rod yeah Um, the general consensus of opinion is that old classic musical differences. It's probably true though, isn't it? Yeah. Like it is like quintessential musical differences, isn't it? It's it's not yeah. like, you know, Paul Diano leaving, which was a bit more cloudy, wasn't it? And like due well, to his, temperament and behaviour. I was going to say his, his brain were a bit cloudy. Yeah. This is actually, you know, he's off listening to loads of stuff they don't particularly like yeah. and don't want influence in their music. So yeah, musical so, differences. So, but there, I think there is definitely more to it than just musical differences. Um, I think that what's happened is is that Dennis Stratton misjudged the maiden hierarchy and his place in it. Right. And I think the role that he thought he was there to fulfil, he wasn't, or at least not to the extent that he thought he was. What did he think he was going to be doing, though? So... In 2013, Stratton was interviewed um, by the YouTube channel Prism Films, where he says that when Steve Harris approached him, he was looking for, in inverted commas, uh, a guitarist, backing singer, second vocalist. Right. Guitarist with recording experience to come into the band, have a listen and see if you can improve what's going on. So right from the off, I think, Stratton's impression mm. was that he was there to make Maiden better. Right. To improve something um, that maybe didn't need a lot of improving. You know, Maiden have been on the road for a long time and they're pretty well-oiled machine, but even at this stage, um, they've got quite a bit of experience. Maybe not as, as much experience as Dennis Stratton did, having toured Europe with Status say, Quo. He's full of it, isn't he? Um, but, you know... Maybe he's over overestimated, you know, what he's he's been asked to do. Um, 
like I said, he'd had previous recording experience with Remus Down Boulevard, toured with Status Quo and Rory Gallagher, um, had a lot more experience uh, than Harris in that sense. Um, and Stratton went on to say that uh, I don't think the band had had too much experience in the studio, a proper studio, and I think they'd done a lot of demos, like the Soundhouse tapes and things like that, but not basically recording, uh, proper recording. Mm. So when, when Stratton got to his first rehearsal with Maiden, they didn't even have a drummer at that point. So as we mentioned earlier, Doug Sampson had left the band on the 22nd of December 1979, which is like less than a month before they go yeah. into the studio uh, to do the first album. So, you know, I think you can forgive Stratton for thinking that maybe um, that the relatively experienced Iron Maiden, when compared to his own bands needed more help and guidance than they actually yeah. did because to, to can you imagine like coming into a band like that and, and thinking well they're falling apart they've mm. got no drummer <laughs> where's your drummer yeah <laughs> we're recording an album soon yeah exactly exactly um so again in the same interview stratton went on to say one of the tracks uh, they put me to was phantom of the opera as we discussed with his uh, work with martin levin in the studio so i took it away worked on the song started working on the harmonies of the song we went to rehearsal, played it. They said, "Brilliant, great, let's go for it." So, again, like you know, you know, he's been to rehearsal. Is is introduced his ideas. The band have said, "Great," they've you know given it the green light. So, why would he not go into the studio and build this track up? Mm-hmm. Why would he not take that opportunity to try and bolster what they've already got with his? obviously, you know, greater knowledge of vocal harmony and guitar harmony and so on and so forth. I'd love to hear what it sounded like before they took all the stuff off it, just to see what his, yeah. his ideas were for it. I'm, I'm, I'm thinking Bohemian Rhapsody. Yeah, maybe. That's what I'm thinking. Um, so, you know, put yourself in Steve Harris's position um, in this situation. He's got a collection of songs written and ready to record, but not a full lineup. And he's probably, at this point, got the studio dates booked in. Knowing mm. Rod Smallwood, you know, he's probably going, you are in studio on this, so hook or by crook, you are going to record something this week. What do you think uh, Steve would say at this point in your Steve Harris accent <laughs> <laughs> to Rod? <laughs> Fucking hell, Rod. <laughs> or something like that. Yeah, I think you're probably um, right. So, um, so yeah, so and also Rod Smallwood's probably got Tour dates booked to support the album. Well, did he say so, he had it all mapped out for three years? Yeah. I have remember. Yeah. I don't know at what point he said that to them, but I do remember reading or it being on one of those documentaries that he had. He really had it all mapped out for quite a long time. Yeah, yeah. So you know, Steve Harris is under a lot of pressure to to get the lineup complete. So you know, Dennis Stratton comes along. He can play. He can sing. Um, he seems like a nice bloke. It's a no-brainer, really. He's in for that album, at least, you know. And I think maybe maybe because of that uh, necessity to get someone introduced, they didn't have that time on the road to get to know each other, to yeah. become accustomed to the way one another, one another works. Um, they're literally, like, straight into it. So, you know, like... It's quite a big role to go straight into as well, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. I mean, obviously we said Clive Burr, Clive Burr's Clive Burr, and he was able to do it, you know, relatively easily. Yeah. Um, so, obviously. So whatever doubts that Harris might have had about Stratton's suitability, um, you know, they've just, they've got to get him in and they've got to get the album recorded and released. Um, 
and I think what whatever was happening in the rehearsal room, in that situation, I'd be thinking, he can sing, he can play. He'll do. He'll do. <laughs> do you know what yeah. I mean? Like, <clears throat> yeah. Like he knows what he's doing. You know, like he's kind of he's yeah. been on tour. He's been in recording studios. It's not like taking yeah. a punt on somebody who's probably not got any experience at all. So yeah, just yeah. and also he knows Clive Burr. Yeah, which puts the final jigsaw piece into place, doesn't it? Really? Yeah. Um, you know. So um, yeah. So in, in a, a further YouTube interview with Rock Pages TV um, in 2016, um, Stratton's stated that he saw his role as essentially a music arranger, adding guitar harmonies in order to open up the songs, make them bigger and more excitable, and that he put the harmony guitar sound into them songs that had never had harmony guitars before. So he's so he's claiming there that he's introduced these harmony yeah. guitar lines. Actually, he, he hasn't. There's recordings of songs like Running Free that were bootlegged um, that had harmony guitars on them. Yeah, I think even on the Soundhouse tapes, there's right, some okay. harmony guitars that predate Stratton's involvement. So that's not quite, not quite true. His memories are a bit muddied. Yeah. Um, you know, so, you know, it might be overstating things um, uh, in, in that regard. Um, so, um, so Phantom of the Opera was uh, a case in point where Stratton took his perceived role as producer and music arranger Probably a bit too much to heart and overstepped the mark a little bit. So, again, from the font of all knowledge, Wikipedia, I shall read this uh, verbatim. This was the only studio album with guitarist Dennis Stratton, talking about Iron Maiden, obviously, um, who, having been brought in as a last-minute replacement, was dismissed due to musical differences after the band's European tour in support of KISS. Suspicions were still raised, was first raised during Iron Maiden's recording when Stratton added Wishbone Ash-esque harmony guitars and backing vocals reminiscent of Queen to Phantom of the Opera, of which the rest of the band immediately disapproved and had removed. Which isn't quite true, because like we say, you know, there's quite a lot of harmonies hmm. I always such. thought that Steve Harris was a massive Wishbone Ash fan and... It wouldn't have been something yeah. that was like him, him bringing an influence in which has nothing to do with the band. Yeah, I was thought. I, I, I'm sure I've heard him talk about Wishbone Ash before. You know, like in early interviews, Steve Harris. Yeah, yeah, I think you're right. I think you're right. So, um, although Stratton stated that he was not only trying to push the band in, an, sorry, that he was not trying to push the band in a new direction, uh, Harris commented that it really pointed up the difference between Den and us. He really pointed out the difference between Den and us. Den. Um, after which he began to notice that Dennis was so much more into playing stuff like Strange World than he was Iron Maiden or Prowler because it was more slow and melodic. Whereas he was soloing, whereas when he was soloing on the heavier songs, it wasn't quite with the same passion, which is what I've been it is. saying all along. Turns um, out you were right. Well, you know, I don't like to blow my own trumpet, but... Um, so in his own words, Stratton says, um, I found myself in the studio on my own quite a lot. And the reason for that is that once the basic track was laid down before the vocals, it gave me a cushion to work on so that then I was allowed to put guitar- uh, how many guitars down to build the tracks up one after the other. Um, about Phantom of the Opera, he said, it was something I could get my teeth into vocally and guitar-wise. And I remember spending all day and night, we were building the track up 
by the end of the day it was sounding absolutely massive unfortunately rod came into the studio and said it sounded a little bit too much like queen which i think is the posh the, the polite version of what actually yeah. happened um so you know he's he's taking on this role quite seriously, and he's he's getting stuck in, which you can't blame him. You know, as far as he's concerned, that's what he's been brought in to do, and he's doing it. Um, and he, and in his defence, he goes on to say it was a learning process. I'm thinking, you know, perhaps I've done too much, perhaps it's gone too far. You know, you don't know how far to take it because I didn't know much about the band, sort of what they were looking for, and you get a problem where you can do too much. And so at least it's there, it's on the tape, and they can take off tracks that they don't need, and that's what they did. So, you know, maybe he's, he's, he's done all this with a view to, well, I'll I'll do a lot, yeah. and then we can strip it back if they don't like it. And I have to say that, with you know, I think that without his involvement, Phantom of the Opera wouldn't be as good as it is. Yeah. Those vocal harmonies are, are great. I think they sound... I think they sound... Because I think, like... When you go see a band who's only got one singer, after like half a dozen songs, you get fed up with the voice mm. and you want to hear a little bit of variation. Maybe they were thinking, how are we going to do this live? Because Steve Harris, you know, God bless him. I don't think they're the strongest, he's the strongest vocalist in the world no. to be doing that doing that as well. No. And so if you're going to be layering all these vocals up and it's going to be a really key part of the song, he's probably thinking, yeah. Yeah, why am I going to do this? Isn't it? That, that, that <laughs> was good, that. I liked it. And, and you know, Adrian Smith and Steve Harris still live sing those yeah. harmonies. Yeah. Adrian that, Smith can sing, though, can't he? Oh, He's yeah. quite a good vocalist. Yeah, he's a great singer. Um, so, in 1980, in an interview given to Heavy Magazine in the Netherlands, yeah. which just sounds like the most it does. Dutch. It does, really. Um, <laughs> I was going to try a Dutch yeah. accent then, but I'm, but I'm not going to... call it heavy. It's too heavy. <laughs> um, anyway, um, both Burr and Stratton state that they rehearsed se- 17 songs in 10 days leading up to the recording of the album. And they, they were still learning parts in the studio. Um, it's not unusual, though, is it? Bands write songs in the studio. Yeah, though, it's don't expensive they way to do it, though, isn't it? Well, it is. 17 songs in 10 days. <sighs> I it's reckon a, you could do uh, that. I don't know. It's a lot. So, you know, I mean... To be recordable quality, I get your point there. I mean, it's little wonder that some of Stratton's solos and such feel a bit less developed than Mm. Dave Murray's because he's had, like, literally 10 days to figure out what he's going to play, whereas Dave Murray's had, like, three or four years. This is true. You know, so... um, You know, so... Stratton went on to to sort of say, um, you know, they, they still wanted the raw, aggressive guitar work but not too sweet regarding vocal harmonies, which is what I've always been into, you see, to end the quote. Um, so, yeah, musical differences. Stratton's into the lush vocal harmonies and guitar work, and, and they wanted a bit more of a raw metal kind of mm. sound. Um, to be fair... To be I'm, starting fair to, I'm starting to feel a bit sorry for him now. I am. I, I, I feel like he's been outdone by... And you'll feel more so as it move, as the tale moves along to its sad demise. <laughs> um, you know, um, as we've said, I think his contributions are great. His harmonies are well arranged. They're all in the right places. And where they appear, they actually lift the song. You know, like you're saying um, with Prowler. Yeah. 
and also I think um, running free. Right. Oh yeah, there's in some the, in the choruses. There's some high high background yeah. vocals on that. Isn't they there? actually lift the songs yeah. where they need lifting. So you know, I think he's done a, a, a great job. And that kind of thing, even when Bruce Dickinson was in the band, who had like who obviously his his vocal capabilities are you know much greater than Paul Diano's. That never yeah. really occurred again, did it? That like layered up vocals. And no. That, so that's probably why some of those bits on the first album, backing vocal wise, really stand out, don't they? And it's down to our mate Dennis. Yeah, absolutely. And I, th- I, I think you know his um, liking for more complex harmonic structures, vocally and and, and guitar wise uh, within the song. I think that that was quite a big wedge between him and Steve Harris. I think he was more into that than Steve Harris was, and pro- probably the rest of the band, um, to the point where. It, it looked to have happened again um, during the recording of Women in Uniform, um, which was probably the last straw for Steve Harris and Rod Smallwood, I would imagine. Um, so the idea to cover um, Women in Uniform was suggested by the band's publishing company, uh, Zomba, who arranged the studio time at Battery Studios with ACDC uh, producer Tony Platt. Um, I don't think I've ever heard the original of this. Have you? Yeah. Have you? Yeah. I have to dig it out. I completely forget that this song exists. Yeah. You know, because it was before we liked them. Yeah. It was, wasn't on the album. It doesn't really appear too much on any um, documentaries and bits and bobs like that are of them, does it, around that era? It's like a forgotten song with good reason, really. It is. Um, and I don't think... Um, Steve Harris was too keen on the song because it is quite a departure from all the other stuff that they'd recorded up to that point. Um, it's a bit Motley Crue, isn't it? You know, like the lyrical content on the yeah. chorus and stuff like that. Yeah. It's a bit sort of hair metal before hair yes. metal. Um, but he, he agreed to do it when he found out that um, Tony Platt had been hired to produce it. Um, surmising that, as he... As he worked with ACDC. <laughs> and that. It's like he's I in thought, the room. I know. I thought, oh, you know, fine. <laughs> he's not going to pull us in any commercial direction. There you go. Um, uh, and after trying to create their own heavy version of the song, to Harris's dismay, found out that Platt, with the help of Stratton, conniving Stratton behind his back, going behind his bat and changing the song and stuff. It's like something out of a Shakespearean play, isn't it? It is, it is, it is Shakespearean. Stratton had been tampering with the song's mix as he had been briefed by Zomba to try and get a hit single. Bloody hell, Dennis. Bloody hell, Dennis. So as a result, Platt was dismissed and Harris remixed the track himself. Did he now? He did. Um... So there you go. I think uh, musically, ultimately, Stratton uh, was a bit of a square peg in a round hole. And um, certainly listening to his playing on a Reading Festival recording of uh, uh, from 1980, you can hear that his playing occasionally jarred against what the rest of the band were doing. Um, and I'm thinking, um, and this is weird because this is after the album's been recorded and I don't feel like there's anything that he performed on the album that's out of place. But for instance, like the arpeggios on the verses of Remember Tomorrow, 
begin on the wrong beat at the bar. Right. And rhythmically, they interfere with Steve Harris's bass arpeggios. Um, and also, like, he overplays in places like the harmonics on the beginning of Remember Tomorrow, which are quite subtle on the album. They are, yeah. They're quite overplayed. I might need to go um, listen to this again, because I don't think I've... Well, I don't think I've listened to it at all, this. Yeah, well, it's, it's quite interesting. Um, there's one bit where I think it's Dennis Stratton, because I think he's the only other person on stage with a microphone, but right. I'm pretty sure that he goes, Woo! In the first chorus of Running Free. But Steve didn't like that. Well... He's kind of treading on Paul Diano's toes a little bit there, you know, trying to get into lead guitarist, uh, lead singer, sorry, territory. Yeah. Um, and also, he's addressing the crowd at the end of the gig quite a lot. I don't like that. Thanks a lot, you've been great. Well, that's Paul Diano's it is. job. It's not his job. His job's to play guitar and, you know, be a rock god. There's very few bands out there where somebody other than the singer can get away with talking to the audience between yeah. songs. Yeah. And in also, fact, I can't really think of that many others. And also, I do, like of all the bands in all the world, Iron Maiden are the least woo <laughs> band yeah. that you could ever encounter. Um, so in the end, I think the writing was on the wall, especially with the recording of, you know going behind Steve's back on Women in Uniform session. Um, I think Rod Smallwood forced the issue. Stratton has said, while on tour with Kiss, Smallwood openly questioned his commitment to the band because of his taste for less heavy music. Um, I think the, the, the example that Stratton gave was he was listening to the Eagles right. on the tour bus and, and Rod Smallwood um, didn't like that. Um which kind of bears out in an interview that he and Clive Berg gave uh, on October the 5th, 1980 in the Netherlands, which I think was for, again, for Heavy Magazine. It's Heavy Magazine. Sorry, that was awful. <laughs> I'm not doing that again. Um, and and um, the, the interviewer asks the pair, which bands do you like best? And the response is, uh, well, Burr says, me, followed by a bit of nervous laugh, laughter, I like Frank Zappa, Scorpions. Um, I'd better not say anymore. More, more nervous laughter. I've got very wide taste. Just as a bit of an aside, that Clive Burr likes Frank Zappa at this point, whose drummer was Terry Bozio. That's quite a good influence to have as a drummer, isn't it? Makes total sense. Yeah. Because if you listen to stuff like Broken Hearts for Our Souls on Shaky yeah. Booty, <laughs> yeah. it's a very Clive Burr sort of feel, yeah. do you know what I mean? Like yeah. It totally makes sense to me that he likes Frank Zappa. Um, Stratton says uh, all different music all different kinds of music not just heavy metal but all different kinds anything that's good Burr says yeah Stratton says I think if you're in a little pub band playing a little band in a club and they're good then I think they're good you know so what he's saying here basically is if it's, you know there's two types of music there's good music and bad yep. music and it, stylistically it doesn't really matter which is which um Burr says, um, you, should, you sh- shouldn't just have um, one taste in music. If you're a mu- musician, it's better for you to have a wide taste and then you can pick the best from everybody. See what I mean? So, 
Obviously, this conversation that Stratton's had with the uh, that Smallwood has had with the band about Stratton's musical taste—it's reading between the lines. A subtext in this interview is that these two don't want to talk about. It does, doesn't it? It seems like they've both been told we like metal, or it's yeah. like it's not really appropriate for this band. If you like anything that's not rock music or metal music, um, yeah, it's, it's weird that yeah. isn't it? Just kind of the, gen- the the undertone of that of kind of what this what they're saying especially where they feel like they can't actually talk about it or they don't yeah. want to say too much. It's, I mean, you know, bearing in mind that they're, they're both relatively new to the setup mm. and new to the band. And, you know, Steve is obviously, it's his thing. Small, Steve and Rod Smallwood are thick as thieves. They're the guys that say what goes. Um, and you don't want to be on the wrong side of them too if you want to be part of this good thing that you've got going. Mm. Um, so Stratton's also said that... Sp- um, and this is quoted from a different interview uh, that Smallwood was making sure I couldn't get home to see my wife and kid because he'd have other things booked. Um, which is kind of the point of being an amb- in an ambitious young band mm. when you're trying to get some momentum going and gain some success. Yeah. Um, so maybe maybe that was also a reason why Stratton was deemed unsuitable. Especially if they're thinking of going on, you know, abroad or to to America and touring. Yeah. And if he's and if he's kind of really concerned about seeing his wife and kid, which yeah. he would be. And also, he, he was criticised by Rod Smallwood for wanting to spend time um, on the Kiss tour and away from the rest of the band, preferring to spend time with the crew and Kiss themselves, um, which I can kind of understand might be a bit of a like a no no. Mm. like going out and hanging out with the headlining act all the time. Yeah. Um, but I think um, Rod Smallwood was just keen to keep the band together as a unit, which later on, you know, Stratton has said that he met up with Rod Smallwood in LA in 1984 or something like that, and they actually talked about it, and, and Rod did say, Rod Smallwood did admit that he was wrong to try and do that. Yeah. Um, so I, I think in the end, you know, Smallwood and Stratton and... Harris have probably kissed and made up. and um, You would hope so. After all these years, you yeah. would kind of think, well, we're different people now. Maybe in Steve Harris's sex dungeon. Yeah, maybe. Um, maybe. Um, so, yeah, that's, that's that's the sorry tale of Dennis Stratton. Oh, bless um, him. He was, he was edited out of um, the Women in Uniform uh, video and Iron Maiden's history, to a certain extent, when he was, when he was booted out. Um it's interesting to point out that within, like, m- literally months of Dennis Stratton's departure, they were in the studio again with Adrian Smith recording um, Killers and uh, Live at the Rainbow, which I believe oh, yeah. was done in December of 1980. They worked uh, quick, didn't they? They did work quick. And unfortunately, Stratton got left by the wayside. <sighs> Bless him. So, the... Glaring omission thus far from talking about this debut album is the iconic cover. So, Julian, what can you tell us about the cover and it's the, the artiste behind it? Well, the artiste is Derek Riggs. If you don't know who Derek Riggs is, what I would advise is you go on YouTube and you just try and find some interviews with him because he's very, very entertaining as a, as a human being. Um, so it was originally, the cover was a painting, but it was a different painting. It was called Electric Matthew Says Hello. And on the original one, he's got much shorter hair and it's a bit more of a punk 
themed painting. And then the band saw it, they liked it. Um, they got him to amend it a little bit and they added the hair on it and so on. Um, and it's actually set on a bridge. I think it's Finsbury Park. Yeah, the background's based on a bridge in Finsbury Park. And the lamppost was there um, until recently. And if you're on Google Maps, it's there as kind of a, a place of historical interest is the actual lamppost. But it's gone now. I think it's been removed for whatever reason. Finsbury Park local authority removed the Iron Maiden lamp. They did. But they've got no sense of heritage. <laughs> I know. I know. It's it's sacrilege. Um, Derek you, Riggs... Um, go on, did, sorry. Didn't, um, sorry to interrupt. Didn't um, Derek Riggs first see Eddie the Ed on the side of a tank? Oh, yeah. I'm sure he said in an interview that he, it was a, in, during the Vietnam War he saw some head of something painted on the side of a tank. That's on 12, uh, 12 Wasted Years when they're interviewing yeah. him for that. I think he says that in it. And he did all the album covers. I don't know if he still does any of them. No, probably, a lot of them are probably computer generated, aren't yeah. they? Or the more digital. I think he sold all his rights to the Eddie image a long time ago. I think he's quite active on Facebook though because I followed him for a while but a lot of his stuff is still based around you know variations on the Eddie theme. I think he does a lot of those you know the like um, conventions. Comic Con. Comic Con type, type things, things like that. He does a lot of those. Um, yeah so he did the cover. I remember being disappointed at the time because the inlay sleeve didn't really have very much to it. You know when you've got three or four tapes you know you get to know every single word every single piece of you know information that's on them and it didn't really have very much um yes and it said fame on it do you know what fame was was it like a sub i think it was a sub label of EMI. emi right okay yeah um and that was it really so that's all that the album kind of inlay has on the album cover i used to love album covers and inlay sleeves and i just remember being a bit disappointed by this one i think the biggest i made one was probably somewhere in time wasn't it did that go on for years when you kind of unravelled it from the tape box? Certainly the artwork, but Live After Death oh, for yeah, liner that. notes is the king of all <laughs> albums. It's the standard, isn't it? It's it is. By which all liner notes should be uh, following. I, I think it's Live After Death has even got the menu that the caterers provided. Has it? I need to go dig know, this I might, out. I might be joking. But you might not be as well. It might but, actually be in it. You know, Monday is Fish and Chips. Tuesday... I don't know, steak and kidney pudding. Yeah. I bet I bet Steve Harris loves a good steak and kidney pudding. I bet pie. he does as well. He's, he's all meat and taters, isn't he? Steve he Harris. Is. He's a meat and taters kind of guy. He is. I bet Derek Stratton liked sushi before everybody else did. He seems like a sushi kind of guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I bet Dave Murray's into all that as well. <laughs> yeah. Um, so are we, we going to round this up in some meaningful fashion? No. No. <laughs> well, that, that was... Uh, that was an interesting uh, deep dive into Iron Maiden's eponymous album. Uh, we are the Rock Geeks. My name's Phil, and this is... Julian. Ta-ra for now. <laughs> In a bit. <laughs> Thank you for listening to the Rock Geeks podcast. 
If you have any comments, corrections and or constructive criticism, you can contact us at therockgeeks at gmail.com. If you have anything unnecessarily rude to say, please put it in your own trash folder and delete it to save us the bother. While we do read every email we receive, we cannot unfortunately guarantee a reply. The Rock Geeks is researched, written and presented by Phil Greenwood and Julian Gallagher. Jingles composed and recorded by Phil Greenwood and Julian Gallagher. Editing by Phil Greenwood. If you have enjoyed the Rock Geeks podcast, please consider joining us at Patreon, where in exchange for your generosity you will receive ad-free episodes, bonus content and early access. Or alternatively, it would be greatly appreciated if you could leave us a five-star review and tell your friends about us.